The Lifestylist, episode 118, featuring Daniel Smoktenberger. I'm Luke Story, a former celebrity fashion stylist and founder of School of Style. For the past 20 years, I've been relentlessly dedicated to my deepest passion, designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of health and spirituality. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. All right, I've got two questions for you. First question is, do you like orgasms? Obvi, the answer to that is yes. Second question, are you going to be or can you be in Los Angeles this Friday night, January 19th? Now, if the answer was yes to one and the answer is yes to two, then I'm going to tell you where you want to be, and that is joining me at One Taste Venice for the Intuitive Holistic Healing Event. We're going to be talking about orgasm and consciousness. Yes, they do meet. They do relate. So if you're into things like meditation, exploring desire, the relationship between masculine and feminine energy, how to balance that, healing through sex, strengthening intuition through orgasm and pleasure and the importance of boundaries, then you want to come hang out with me and the One Taste crew. So to get into this event, it's very simple. Just go to lukestory.com forward slash events and you will find it there. It's 40 bucks prior, 45 the day of. Again, that's this Friday night, January 19th from 7.30 p.m. to 9.30 p.m. at One Taste Venice. Again, to get your ticket, go to lukestory.com forward slash events. I can't wait to meet you there. Do you know anyone suffering from Lyme disease, autoimmune issues, heavy metal toxicity, parasites, gut problems, inflammation, etc.? I bet you do. It might just be you. I know I qualify for a couple of those. And I have found the most powerful and effective natural solution. It is known as the AMP coil. Really, really crazy, amazing technology. So go to ampcoil.com and you will learn all about what I'm describing. Or you can also go back and listen to episode number 98 with the founders. But I've been getting great results with the Amp Coil for cleansing, detoxification, sports recovery, my sleep is off the chain, stress reduction, mental focus, cognitive improvements, neurotransmitter re-education. This is the ultimate health biohack. And I happen to use it a lot when I meditate and I'm just relaxing. So this is a really amazing discovery. These guys have put together five or six different technologies into one device. And it's a professional grade device, but it's for home use, which makes it really easy to use and simple and just profoundly powerful. I'm going to warn you though, if you get one, you're going to have a house full of people all the time that want to use it because that's what happened to me. So if you want to check it out, go over to ampcoil.com and they will be more than happy to answer your questions. Well, hello, my fellow brave homo sapiens. I'm Luke Story and I'm here to bring to you the second episode of this 2018 Happy New Year, and this one is not going to disappoint. My guest today is Daniel Schmachtenberger, who is a scientist, a complex systems designer, and an evolutionary philosopher. He's also the co-founder of Neurohacker Collective 
and the founder of Emergence Project, a futurist think tank. Now, I found Daniel through Neurohacker Collective, who make my all-time favorite nootropic stack called Quali. I talk about it on the show all the time. It's by far the most potent and well-thought-out brain supplement I've ever taken, so I just had to track down the guy behind it. Now, when I found Neurohacker Collective, I discovered, wow, these guys are up to a lot, and uh, Qualia is just kind of the tip of the iceberg. So in this interview, we really talk about his vision for the company and for the world. And I got to tell you what, uh, he's just one of the smartest people I've ever sat down and had a conversation with in my life. So seriously, I'm not even exaggerating. In 47 years, he's one of the most brilliant people I've ever talked to. It was fascinating to sit down and get to engage with him. It's as if I would ask him a question, and I thought my questions were pretty well thought out and fairly bright, you know? I mean, I knew I was going to be interviewing someone with a brain in their skull, so I put some thought into it, and I I had a lot of stuff that I wanted to cover with him because I knew he had a very broad body of knowledge, but I'd drop a question, and he'd basically break it down into eight parts and then proceed to just run circles around me. It was like he was like doing donuts around my brain, just like, oh, you know, and I'm not being self-deprecating at all. I, I think I'm a fairly smart guy, but uh, he's on another level. But what's really cool about Daniel is, A, he's super humble, and he's also got a lot of heart. He's someone who's been you know, deeply into meditation and metaphysics for a long time, so he has this really warm, friendly, spiritual vibe, but he's also highly analytical and scientific. And the way that he approaches the woes of mankind is very fascinating because he zooms way out and looks at everything from a systems perspective, and that's kind of his whole model. And so when he looks at the human body, our cognition, nootropics, all the stuff that we get into, he's really looking at the whole body as a system. And then the goal being, once you've kind of upgraded your system and you're optimized, then what are you going to do out into the world? And so as a result, as we sat down on his bedroom floor, essentially on some pillows, just had this great talk, I wanted to talk about health and the brain and qualia and how they come up with and all this stuff. And dude, we we ended up like opening up this vortex, you know, this sort of portal <laughs> of consciousness. And we talked about homeschooling and the difference between that and the public school brainwashing that goes on and political correctness, cultural Marxism, postmodernism, uh, the North American genocide, you know, that little thing that we, we don't tend to like to talk about much. So we really went into some of the systemic issues of our society and of culture and then went backwards and sort of reverse engineered that in this epic talk uh, in terms of our personal subjective mental health and well-being and how that we can get that on track in order to make a positive contribution to some of these larger social and cultural issues. So this one really veers off kind of off track a bit from some of my normal shows and this might represent uh, a trend in 2018. I, I might, you know, leave the reservation a little bit here and there and um, go into some of these other areas. I by no means want to make a political show because I'm definitely not qualified, but I think that there's a lot to talk about when it comes to building the ultimate lifestyle and community and our culture and society has a lot to do with that. So that's the basic gist of it. Some of the other things we talk about that might be of interest to you and make your ass keep listening to the rest of this episode till the very 
well, I was going to say bitter end, but it's not a bitter end. It's actually a glorious end because we really get into some deep stuff towards the end of the conversation. But we talk about uh, the fact that all human beings alive today basically have some degree of mental illness and what we can do about that. Some alternatives to capitalism. Again, zooming out, looking at some of the more broad issues and some possibilities that aren't even part of the conversation yet. The basis of all addictions and what to do about them. And the folly of looking for happiness out there. The origins and the vision of Neurohacker Collective. They are up to some really cool stuff. And he uh, allowed us to be privy to some of the launches that they've got going on in the near future. And it's really, really exciting stuff. Then we cover, of course, all of the top smart drugs and nootropics, why and how they work, and some of the risks and benefits involved in their use. And then we get to cover one of my favorite topics briefly, which is geoengineering chemtrails and the effect of those programs on our brains and on our biology. And that's something I'm going to be talking more about this year because I just, I miss the blue sky that used to exist in the 70s when I was a kid. It was really beautiful. Some of you weren't there to appreciate it, but we really used to have this thing called sky and it's been hijacked for a number of reasons, which we briefly discuss. So this is an info, an action-packed episode. I'd like to invite you right now to put on your little bunny suit and dive into this massively deep rabbit hole with myself and Mr. Daniel Schmachtenberger. All right, so here we are with Daniel Schmachtenberger. Good to see you, dude. Good to see you, my friend. Thanks for having us into your home. I look forward to this conversation. Thanks for coming. Yeah, dude. We're going we're gonna to go deep here, my friend. So I'm just going to jump right in. A couple things that I've learned about you from reading about you and listening to you on other shows is that you were homeschooled. That's true. And at the same time, you're a really bright guy who is very knowledgeable and articulate. I would consider you, and I don't throw this term around, but I would consider you to be someone that's highly intelligent to the point where you could be called brilliant. And I don't call everyone brilliant. (laughs) You're a really smart guy. So why did your parents elect to homeschool you? And what impact has that had on your your, mental acuity? So it was an educational experiment my parents were interested in. And uh, my dad particularly spent his life thinking about educational philosophy and human potential and how do we actually actualize human potential better. And my mom had uh, shared interests and different skills, and so they, they decided to take it on together. And the experiment was what happens if we give a kid no curriculum at all, no fixed curriculum. So I didn't have English and social studies and mathematics, and, but just expose them to everything possible, facilitate their interests, and see what happens. And uh, so that was the experiment. And having gone through the whole experiment, we could do it much better now. <laughs> there, were, there were parts that got learned along the way. But the effective parts that I would say were a successful experiment is every kid has profound fascination with life in their own ways. And we usually do a good job of breaking it. And we also usually do a good job of training them not to think well. So little kids ask, what is that, what is that, what is that, at first, right? It's the first question. They're getting the anatomy of the universe down. And then why, why, why? And the depth of why run into philosophically and physically deep questions that we usually don't know how to answer. And so we give them, we just don't answer them or we give them shit answers. What? <laughs> Made up answers, yeah, yeah. But or, or some less conscious parents would say, because I said so. <laughs> yeah, or because it just is, or God made it that way, or whatever. So when the right. kid asks, why is the sky blue? 
And most adults realize they don't actually know something that is that fundamental to our experience every day, right? In all human experience, they either say, I don't know how do you spell cat, right? Like they move it into the domain of the known, but they move it from something that was fundamental about the nature of the universe to something that wasn't. And so if you really want to explain why the sky is blue, you have to understand that our upper atmosphere is made of nitrogen and oxygen and the percentage of it and nitrogen specifically as N2 and how molecules work and how light coming from the sun works and the speed of light and diffraction and understanding what optics is and it, like there's a lot of deep things and then but wait that's why it is that specific wavelength but why do I subjectively experience it as blue so now we're looking at the mind-brain interface right and the relationship between consciousness and physics and kids want to know that, right? They want to know why is fire hot, which again is a fucking deep question. And they're like, every kid asks these things. And since we don't know, we don't facilitate what they're naturally fascinated in, that fascinated by, and we force them to be interested in stuff that is totally not interesting. And in doing so, we don't teach them the interesting things. We don't teach them the things that are foundational about life that actually lead to the ability to understand everything else. And we actually break their interest in life, which is why then they just want to veg out and watch TV. Or, you know, the, the whole welfare person phenomena who yeah. is actually... That's what I was going to say. They become great taxpayers. <laughs> but see, those are broken people. That's the key insight, is that everyone is born fascinated, interested. And if you facilitate that, then not only are you helping them learn a tremendous amount, <clears throat> and, you're, and they're going to be fascinated about different things, some more in the direction of aesthetics or ethics or fundamental science or athletics or... But there will be a unique genius actualization if it's followed. And uh, so that was the experiment. And we could go on about educational philosophy. But one of the key like insights there is that we have an educational system in the U.S. right now and in most of the West that was built in the Industrial Revolution to make industrial bots. Right. And it was the right. Thank you. No, I love going here. I was hoping, I was hoping we could get into this. So yeah. carry on, please. And so... As we started to look at building industrial supply chains, then we wanted every assembly line worker, before we had automated that task, to basically be an automata, right? They would do the exact same thing. And so anyone who had been trained into doing that could be replaceable. They were fungible for anyone else. And any MBA from a good business school was replaceable for any other MBA, any VP of marketing. Any, so we want to take unique humans and collapse them into fungible roles. And so then we can just have an org chart and say, I'm looking for three of these and four of these, totally replaceable. In the process of doing that, when you collapse the uniqueness of a human to a fungible role, there's, of course, the intrinsic motive to do that is gone. Deep competition and comparison because we're competing on being the exact same role. So we're competing on the same metrics rather than any uniqueness. Like, there's no way to compare Salvador Dali and MC Escher and Da Vinci because how, how the fuck would you do that, right? Like, they're... You can't compare them on the same metrics. And if, like, if Dolly hadn't done what he did, some other artist wouldn't have done the same thing. Universe would just have been less. That was the uniqueness of that being expressing in a totally fucking unique way, which is why all artists for history hadn't done that thing. And so, so much of the jealousy, envy, comparison, competition also comes from being collapsed to categories. And there were reasons why we did this, as we, you know, for all of human history until not that long ago, till the beginning of what we call civilization 10,000 years ago, give or take, for 8 million years of hominid history, we never got more than 150 people. And those 150-person tribes, everyone could be pretty unique and actually get along well because they knew everybody else and they could actually keep track of it. And as soon as we wanted to go to start having very large numbers, we had to create some homogeneity 
between everyone. So we started making them a lot more like termites or ants, which are animals that can do a lot of them working together, but within a class, a worker ant or a drone ant, they're all fungible, right? They're all replaceable for each other. So this system is very much like that, and education is the indoctrination into being, going from a unique human to a fungible bot. Dude, you just described <laughs> my whole, in a very deeply intellectual way, my whole experience subjectively with education. And the whole time you're talking, I'm thinking, this is why I have a podcast, and this is why I do what I do, because I'm so curious and so fascinated by, by the way things work and what they, the questions of why, right? And so I was always seeking truth, even as a kid. Like, how does this work? Why does it work? But the system that I was put into, and literally, physically, the desks I was put into were like little torture chambers. And, and my creativity was actually discouraged and, and was almost forced, you know, forced to join the basketball team because I was having behavioral problems. And their solution was like, cool, make him conform to something that makes him even more insecure and feel like even more of an outsider, being the kid with long hair and refusing to wear the right shoes so I wore my vans and slid around the court and got made fun of and you know harassed and picked on and stuff like that and it's like once I turned the day turned 18 I quit high school I was marking it off on my calendar like a prisoner you know putting notches on the wall as like marking the calendar to October 29th 1988 and that was the day of freedom and from that moment on once I left school then I became obsessed with learning and it's so, it's so interesting to look from the standpoint of your perspective because it wasn't that I didn't want to learn, it's that I didn't want to learn that way. Those topics. And Those that topics way. Yeah, and, and that, that way, context. yeah. Yep. And so now it's like, you know, here I am 47 and I'm like, I'm like the most curious childlike energy I think there is. I mean, I don't know anyone that's as curious as me about the way things work and it, it's such a gift to be able to interview people yeah. and, and really learn about this stuff. So... So that's so now notice how fortuitous that your parents, you know, you were so situated that your parents got that, right. and that you had an opportunity to take a different path. Now it's because you didn't actually identify, you, you didn't actually succeed at school in that way, that you were able to actually do something else. To the degree you succeed at it, then you're trapped by the continuation of that curve forever. So notice the smarter the kids are, smart meaning good at that particular definition of smart, the earlier we push them into hyper-specialization, right? We want to get them in AP classes towards their specialty young. And then the further we push them in specialization, so by the time they do their dissertation, 10 people in the world know what the fuck they're talking about. So they know so much about such a narrow area. So they're not thinking about big picture things or th interdisciplinary things at all. That means that the smartest people aren't actually questioning macroeconomics and questioning culture and questioning governance, questioning the foundational axioms of how we do academia or science because they're, they're just doing one tiny little thing. So we're training them to be very sharp cogs in the industrial wheel. <laughs> Dude, that's so true. And the only people wow. who are usually left thinking about any big picture things are people that didn't have those types of proclivities. And that is actually a way of taking things that could be dangerous and making them not only not dangerous, but very good tools of the continuation of a particular system. And so because you didn't actually do that well at it, then you were able to say, fuck it, I want to do something totally different. Right. That is interesting. It reminds me of something I've talked about on the show. And there was this, I got to find this freaking, it was some study or evaluation or paper or something that I came across at one point and it was talking about entrepreneurship and how the top 10 people with the highest IQs in the world all work for someone else. 
and all the great inventors and the you know monumental, colossal entrepreneurs in the world dropped out of high school, didn't go to college. I mean, it's this universal trend that the smartest people don't think outside of the box. And it's, the theory was that the people that you're describing that are highly specialized and that rise to the top of their class intellectually, that they're so smart that they're able to overcalculate the risks involved in a venture of creativity. Whereas if you have a more of a visionary creative type that doesn't fit within that box, but also obviously still has a, a certain degree of intellectual prowess, that they're smart enough to have the idea and creative enough to have the vision, but just dumb enough to not be able to calculate the risk and be willing to go out and walk the plank and lose it all for the sake of... So saying dumb enough is one way of thinking of it. Another way of thinking of it <laughs> has to do with the way they're trained in relationship to risk aversion. Okay, okay, I, li- I like that. Because I, I think of myself as that, and I tend to be self-deprecating. So I appreciate you seeing, in an NLP way, seeing that word, dumb enough. So, so what is really happening? Think about this. If the kid who gets a 4.0, one of the keys of getting a 4.0 is making no mistakes. Right? Like, that's how you, that's how you right. got that, is that you did right. everything right and everything perfect. Now, everything right means you learned what had already been figured out was the orthodox truth and you were able to repeat it effectively, right? And then at a certain point, once you understand that system completely enough, you can extend it a little bit, which, you know, in the postdoc level, you take the current, whatever the field is, and extend it a tiny bit after proving that you understood it, you know, perfectly. People who got a lot of praise and a lot of success and identity around never making any mistakes and getting everything perfect are not oriented to do things that have a very high risk of failure. <laughs> That's great, dude. And so true. So when, when kids are praised for getting things right, you fuck them up. Because the, a number of things. One, so think about this. In general, all the praise that kids get is when they do something that the authority wants them to do and has already designated as right and good and true. Right. So whether it's the teacher, the preacher, or the parent, they get praise for doing what someone else wanted them to do. They almost always get punishment for doing things that made sense to them that they wanted to do. So this is how you condition people to be good cogs within an authoritarian system where we defer our own agency, our ability to assess the world and our own agency to somebody that knows better than us. And the teacher, the preacher, the parent, right, they all represent that, and then it becomes the boss and the, you know, macroeconomy, the state, the et cetera, writ large. And so if we want people that actually can really be innovative, we can't train them that way. We have to train them to self-assess and self-initiate and not actually get hits of praise from getting something right that others already figured out. And when we do that, like oftentimes there's a kid who becomes a spelling bee champion or a math genius because they just happened to fucking figure out like how spelling works or how math works and they got so much praise for it and they weren't getting enough unconditional love otherwise that they were optimizing for the extrinsic reward associated with the math of getting the praise even though they might actually hate math or be not terribly interested in math, they just happened to get it. If you didn't do that, then you might find math is all right but they're actually fascinated by art. And so then they can become very good at something they have no passion for and it's all based on extrinsic motive that is damaging intrinsic motive. Wow. Wow. Do you have kids? I don't have kids. I'm like, you'd be a great dad, dude. I was, I was picturing your kids, man. They're going to be so well-developed. 
if and when you have them. I don't. I don't. I don't either. I have. I think partially because I'm like terrified of not doing a good job of it because I still feel like I'm doing so much work on myself. But it's it's interesting to think about a generation of people close to our age that have an understanding of things in this way that can actually usher in the next generation of human that is allowed to express their full potential without being confined into this system. And most of the people that have the deepest, uh, have, have had the deepest exploration about the nature of reality either aren't having kids because they see how much is wrong with the world and they're applying that creative and parental energy to trying to solve problems in the world or they don't feel secure enough in the world with nuclear war looming again for the first time and macroeconomic collapse and climate change, et cetera, to want to bring kids in. <laughs> so, okay, so moving on into, I mean, there's so, literally so much to unpack in any one of these topics, but there's so many things I want to cover with you. But the education thing definitely piqued my interest, just learning that you were homeschooled, but you're a really bright guy, so where's the connection? And that's making sense. See, I didn't go to college. To me, higher education was move to Hollywood, play in a band, deal drugs, done. I mean, I had it figured out, so I thought. I think I went to LACC for like two weeks. I took health, and um, which you know later, I guess, came to serve me. But I only made it two weeks, and I took health and classical guitar. I was like, oh, cool, I'll learn how to play rad guitar. I go in there like, oh, we're going to learn how to read music. I was like, no, that's math. I'm out. Um, but when I look at higher education now, just from what I see in social media, there's this, just where we are culturally is so interesting because this millennial generation, um, I read something the other day, for example, that uh, they surveyed a bunch of millennials and 50% of them indicated that they would prefer communism over capitalism. <laughs> you know, And there's this whole postmodernism and, and Marxist ideas and all this, to me, really crazy stuff that they seem to have seeped its way into higher education. And you have this generation of kids that are in this weird Orwellian 1984 thought police, political correct insanity. Like, what's the deal with, with that right now? And do you know what I'm talking about? And, yeah. and do you think that this has been perpetuated uh, intentionally? Or is this just a natural progression of A plus B equals C in how things have carried on? All right, that's it, like quite a few really deep topics mixed together <laughs> yeah, that really yeah. need kind of unwound. Yeah. So postmodernism as one topic and its relationship to higher education. Okay. The trend of higher education writ large and the other issues beyond postmodernism. Looking at macroeconomy and questioning capitalism and looking at other macroeconomic systems and generational dynamics that millennials are expressing are all important and they're somewhat tied, but they're also there's some different <laughs> dynamics. So in my classic interview style, I just ask six questions under one umbrella. Yeah. So, well, take a stab at any part yeah. of that. To me, I'm just, you know, I'm very zoomed out and I'm looking at things that I see like that. Like, wait, kids don't understand communism doesn't work. How did we get there? You know, it's just, it's so bizarre to me in this whole, I don't know, the climate of so there's free speech being crushed unless they, people agree with you. Like this sensitive snowflake, weird, safe space, whole college thing. Okay. So the issue as I see it, is actually quite nuanced and complex, and most of the reactionary simplistic takes on it are part of the problem. So let's explore this nuance here All for right, a minute. Cool. So let's take the issue of race, okay, which is right at the heart of that topic. We can sure. look at race, we can look at gender, we can look at transgender, LGBTQ, we can look at any of those dynamics that are part of the identity politics part you're bringing up. Right. Now this is related to 
postmodernism, and it derives some of its intellectual basis from postmodernism, but it's also related to some other key things. So if we look at race, and we look at Black Lives Matter or people of color movement, or etc., we have not ever properly dealt with the fact that this land that we call this country was fully inhabited by lots of nations of people that we completely slaughtered to make this land, right? It was, we're getting taxation without representation in London. We don't want to be here anymore, so we're going to go somewhere else. And hey, look, there's a whole continent that's totally free because we have better military than equipment than they do, so we can kill all those people and take that whole land. There's a real moral fucking problem to having your moral legitimacy as the United States of America and the beautiful Constitution Declaration of Independence being based on genocide. And we're pretty happy to acknowledge, like, after Germany's genocide, they're fucked up, right? There's a whole cultural thing. But our genocide was not that long before, and it was more people. It was a lot more people. Wow, that's interesting. And it was the genocide of the Native wow. American people employing the slavery of the Africans. And we mean real fucking slavery. Like, captured the people by military force, killed lots of them, tortured and killed lots of them, lynching, etc. And we, we don't want to really acknowledge that this country was built with that. It was built with a pretty decent amount of Chinese slavery, a lot of African slavery, and one major genocide. All right, so then we've got, you know, we have to fight a war to finally get rid of slavery not that long ago. Like, really not that long ago. Where there are old people alive today that still remember elements of slavery dynamics. Right? Like, that's a big deal to get. But then... Okay, so we abolished slavery without abolishing the mindset that was associated with it, so a lot of people didn't want it gone. So then we've got Jim Crow and segregation and all that. And then we kind of overturned that, kind of, right? But slaves actually economically work really well. It's kind of nice to be able to have people do all the shit work and not get paid and be able to concentrate the profit margins. And as soon as you don't want to do that with the slaves, now people got to take you know, other people have to take the shit jobs, and who wants the shit jobs? And now you have to dilute the profit margin to pay minimum wages. So there's a lot of people that just didn't like that, right? For legit, legitimate, understandable reasons. And they could justify making another group of people different enough that slavery was better than their own sacrifice in that zero-sum game dynamic, right? Or near-zero-sum game dynamic. And then we have, okay, so now it's not full segregation legally, but that mindset's still there, and the people who are coming out of segregation have generations of trauma and no education and no inheritance, right? As opposed to people who are coming from generations of education, inheritance, and not the same types of trauma. So we have the ghetto phenomena and what that means. And we, we know how epigenetic trauma works now, generationally, right? We know how mimetic trauma works. And so then we look at, do we still have a system of systemic injustice? Fuck yes, we still have a system of systemic injustice, and any white person who wouldn't just trade to be black recognizes that the ethics of the pie slice theorem aren't in place, right? Pie slice theorem is, if it's just, there's a symmetry, right, between you and I, which is I'll cut the slice of pie and you get to pick which side, but I don't get to cut and pick, right? If, if I cut and pick, there's something fucked up, or you can cut and I'll pick. But anyone who says, I wouldn't want to trade positions with the other person, but they should be fine with it, there's a problem. And that's, that's the dynamic here. So... There is a real response to unresolved trauma that is still affecting things. Now that said, the response is coming from a place that is largely influenced by trauma rather than clear strategy, and trauma usually perpetuates itself. And so if a bunch of people with Black Lives Matter are saying, hey, there are real issues where 
there are a lot of black people who are getting killed by police for reasons that are totally unfounded and then not getting prosecuted in the same way, not getting attention in the same way. Like, that's a real deal. And how does anyone go about trying to go to school and feel safe when you can be going to school, doing all the right things and, and have that kind of dynamic occur? All right, so then they go shut down a freeway out of, like, upset and anger or whatever. And then while that's trying to get attention for something that is real, it is strategically problematic, right? Because then you have the alt-right largely arising as a response to those type of dynamics, saying, look, our way of life that we care about is being threatened. And look, these people are rioting and causing chaos and whatever. They're validating our ideas about them not being strategic good thinkers, etc. And so, and because of a postmodern dynamic that in general the progressive left has, it makes it harder for them to cohere because they want to validate everyone's perspective. Because they're suffering, they're still in response to the pain of imperialism where one perspective was imposed on everyone. So part of the response is to say, hey, fuck, everybody actually has a perspective, and the perspective that you're saying is just true because it's science or whatever. A lot of our social science that arose at the same time as our physical science was actually just imperialism. And so postmodernism emerged amongst, I'm radically simplifying here, postmodernism emerged with a partial meaningful truth, which was to say this is just objectively true. This is science, we did the right epistemology, it's objectively true and it's true for everybody doesn't acknowledge that especially as we get into the social sciences, there's a shit ton of bias, right? And so we went looking for monogamy and pair bonding in the animal kingdom because of Victorian age ideas that actually made us do zoology badly, right? And so we, like we see that kind of thing everywhere. So postmodernism said actually different perspectives on reality running different experiments end up yielding different kind of insights. And we still know that are you healthiest on a vegan diet or a paleo diet? I can show you just as much fucking research on both of those that look at different metrics, right? And so whether I'm looking at pH or I'm looking at um, insulin levels or I'm looking at telomere level, like I'll get different answers and also which populations. But when I try and reduce health to some finite set of metrics and there's a million fucking metrics that we can't calculate, I can get a lot of partial answers that seem like the whole answer and seem like, complete science because I'm studying a very complex system in a very simplistic way. So bias is very easy when you try and study a complex system in a simple way because your metrics look really fucking clear. They just don't happen to be all the metrics that matter. And so postmodernism acknowledged that and said, hey, all the perspectives actually have to be factored. Now, there was a kind of virulent version of that that didn't acknowledge their all the perspectives should be acknowledged, but they're not all going to be equally true. Some of them can have distortion in them, so we need to be able to vet for distortion. And all the perspectives are going to be less different in simpler systems. So in chemistry, the epistemology is more straightforward than it is in social sciences. And some of the virulent version of postmodernism just started rejecting truth writ large. Right? Like, any claim of truth is, a cl is an imperialist claim, and nobody can claim truth, and all perspectives are equally true. And, but we can see that that was a virulent version of an appropriate response right. to a, right. the way that science, imperialism, capitalism, along with fucking, like, you know, colonialism, right, all kind of co-emerged. And trying to untangle those was, like, part of the goal there. So if you actually read Foucault or Derrida, there's meaningful good thinking in there. 
most of what you see happening that tries to intellectually reify itself with those people is not actually being done very well, but that's because trauma is influencing a lot of it. But then on the other side, we've never actually taken responsibility to deal with that that trauma was created. So when I say it's nuanced, it is, and it's a really big deal. Because if we look at the, alt, the alt-right and the control left, they have moved to a level of polarization and radicalization that is very hard to imagine how that reconciles. And with a tremendous amount of fear on both sides and trauma on both sides, and associated with that, the desire for secession from the nation, the desire for whatever that leads to war in a world where our military technology is such that we don't get to make it through wars the way we did in the past. And so the idea, hey, look, we fought a war with the British to come get this area and it worked well. Yeah, we had fucking muskets, right? And as the military technology goes up, it becomes more and more problematic. And when we get to the level where you have decentralized exponential technology, which is where we're at right now, We don't get to make it through wars anymore. And humanity has always had different dynamics that led us to polarization and radicalization and then war. And we have to actually learn how to fucking deal with that. And part of it is we have to be able to understand how to take multiple perspectives that have partial truth, find the successful parts and figure out how to do dialectic, how to do synthesis, and be able to find a solution that doesn't just solve for some things while externalizing harm to something else that's affected, but actually solve for the whole set. Okay, so that's just the postmodernism snowflake part. <laughs> that, that makes perfect sense. Because to me, looking from the outside, I'm like, I, I see the trauma and I see that these young people that are wrapped up in that ideology, I see them as victims, you know? And, but I didn't think about the past. I'm just like, you're victims of a perspective that you've adopted, I guess because there was trauma. And I'm just like, God, I feel so bad that this kid thinks that communism works. <laughs> I mean, it's just like... Okay, so now, you know. I want to address this part. Yeah. When in the Depression, there were people openly in the streets discussing socialism, Marxism, laissez-faire capitalism, because the system was failed. Right? You, in a failed state, people are open to like look at any possibility. We are very near a failed state. And we're actually very near a failed civilization globally. So when you look at climate change and the fact that we can't fucking get it right, right? Like we can't get it right. We, we keep driving ourselves towards the point of self-induced catastrophe and possibly extinction. And despite the fact that the Club of Rome identified this overshooting limits in the 60s, right? And, and limits of growth in the World 3 model, despite the fact that it's been called out and we're, we're following the model, we keep progressing on the motherfucking model, right? The Paris Accord was not enough for us to make it. We would have, everything would have been fucked if we did the Paris Accord and we couldn't even do that, right? And so, and that's driven mostly by our current structure of capitalism. Because if I overfish the ocean, right? If I use a mile long drift net and I take all these fucking fish out of the ocean, that's more money for my fishing company this quarter and leaving them in the ocean is worth nothing to me economically. Now it's worth something in the future, but the other guy's going to fish them out if I don't fish them out. So it's not like I can leave them there for the future. So it is a competitive race for near-term wins mortgaging the future. So we make 13 species a day extinct on average. We've 
fished out 90% of the large fish species from the ocean on a three-quarter water planet that took three billion years to get all that fucking life. And in 100 years of industrialized fishing, we fished out 90% of the large fish species, extincted many of them, 80% of the old growth trees gone. That's capitalism working really great. Not working really great, right? We're on the verge of a very realistic AI apocalypse where we should be developing the AI very slowly. We should be very intelligently looking at what it... Because when Edison's working on a light bulb and the light bulb fails, it just doesn't work. Maybe it blows up, no big deal, you do it inside of a container. You work on AI and it fails, and sometimes it doesn't work, and sometimes it kills everything. <laughs> because it is an auto-poetic tech, it is a self-organizing, self-authoring tech. Light bulb isn't, it works or it doesn't work, but it's built on the outside. But, but biotech, right, where you make a new fucking life form, and now it replicates, and it does its own mutation, that is a self-replicating tech, where if you get it wrong, you don't get to stop it. And nuclear wasn't, right? Nuclear is a reaction and then it stops. It's really bad. But nanotech, biotech, and AI are autopoetic, self-replicating tech that might be, depending upon how we do them, incommensurate with biological life as we understand it with faster feedback loops than us. Now, we should develop that as slow as fucking possible because the upsides are awesome, but we should do it in highly controlled, safe-to-fail environments. But all of the fiscal incentive is getting to market first. That's a capitalist incentive who gets to market first, where we're in a race towards the cliff. And the arms race is the same thing. Why do we have, when Carl Sagan showed us in the early 80s that it only took four 100 megaton bombs to kill all life on Earth with a nuclear winter, why do we have 600 times that many? Like, why the fuck do you keep making nukes after you have enough to kill everything down to viruses? Because if you have a for-profit military-industrial complex where you have a source of supply where you need to manufacture more demand, to keep your supply going. It's not like supply and demand is a real thing. There's an initial demand, you create a supply, but now you, you have supply and you manufacture artificial demand, which is why we buy all kinds of shit that doesn't make us happy that we think will make us happy because marketing creates artificial demand. So capitalism is actually broken existentially. So there are people who learned that, okay, Marxism had some nice ideas and there were some good ideas. It didn't actually end up working out that well. No, of course, if we really go study it, we never implemented Marxism, just like we've never implemented laissez-faire capitalism. We've implemented weird models of capitalism. And by the time the USSR came around, it was nothing like Marxism for a bunch of reasons. But Marxism doesn't actually work at scale. It, it works, that kind of model works at a 150-person tribal model. It doesn't extend beyond it. Capitalism did seem to work, but at the cost of radical externality. That externality, when you get to this many people and this much tech, actually self-implodes. So what has worked up to this point, worked. <laughs> worked at the, at, but you, when we say it worked up to this point, we have been utilizing unrenewable resources, moving towards the point of criticality the whole time. And it has required war, right? And it has uh, led to diseases we didn't have before because of environmental devastation and et cetera. And we have a world where today, Almost everyone has low-grade mental illness. Like ubiquitous addiction, ubiquitous low-grade anxiety, existential angst, fairly decent low-grade depression, right? These are not natural to the human condition. Tribal people don't have this shit in the same way. So we say it worked. Huh? Define work. This is optimizing for some metrics at the expense of others in a complex system. So the fact that there are people questioning, is there a fucking better system than this because we're not fixing climate change in the system where it's still more profitable to do the fucked up thing. 
the perverse incentive is ubiquitous in healthcare. Why do we do biohacking stuff? Like, why doesn't healthcare prevent diseases? Because there's no fucking money in preventing diseases. There's a lot of money in treating them. There's, no, there's not that much in curing them, but there's a lot in treating them forever. So what is going to get researched when the money goes in has to have ROI back out in the capitalist system. So the fact that people are recognizing that and questioning is a very good thing. Now, the fact they try to find other things that didn't work as the answer is just a basic, basically hopelessness and a lack of knowing how to go about solving something so fucking hard. So one of the core focuses of my life is what is the macroeconomy of the future? What are the governance systems? What are the civilization systems that can allow us to actually human together well without needing to go to war and unrenewable use of resource and producing ubiquitous mental and physical illness that's unnecessary and et cetera? And it's not any system that has ever happened. So we can get into that if you want to, or we can go to other directions. But also most of the young people who say communism, what they're really saying is Denmark looks better than here. Like that's a social kind of dynamic where better access to medicine, don't have a lot of homeless people, master's to PhD is average level of education, largely secular because of that. Like the Nordic countries just look better. They are, they're just fucking better. There's more socialized dynamics. Now, are they better on every metric? No. If you look here, we have a tremendous amount of innovation here because of certain types of freedoms and a tremendous amount of damage. And our bell curve is very spread out. And so for everyone who's not winning at this system to say nobody is losing as bad in Denmark as they are here, and there's a lot less of them, and they're not ruining the environment as fast, and they're actually figuring their trash problem out, maybe let's actually think about this. And I'm actually not proposing Denmark as a solution. I am saying there are a lot of things that are actually evidentially better on meaningful metrics and things that are adequate to the scope of what do we do with almost 8 billion people and distributed exponential technology don't yet exist. <laughs> Dear. Oh my God. That was amazing. That is a lot to unpack. And it's funny because I've never actually talked about any of these issues on the show. It's always very much about meditation or mindfulness, spirituality, or just full-on health stuff. But I know that you have a systems approach, so kind of zooming out and looking at like, whoa, what's even beyond, hey, am I optimizing my sleep or take, you know, how does my blood work look this year? I mean, this is stuff that goes way above and beyond that. And where are we going from here, which is interesting. I just think it, I, you know, I, I spurned the question because I, I knew that you'd be someone that could answer it in a way that encouraged more questioning. But it's such an interesting time to be alive. That's why sometimes it's hard for me not to deviate from my format and the basic topics and get way off into this stuff because I'm watching things happen that have never happened before, as we all are, right? It's just such a trippy time on Earth, and there's so many positive things going on, and I feel that there's this massive awakening, thanks to people like you, and shows like this, and just the proliferation of information through social media and through the internet. But at the same time, it's so dark, and we are on this, you know, as you said, about to go over the waterfall. I mean, we are at the precipice of absolute destruction, while at the same time, there's this light that's really, um, I think we're in this sort of spiritual uh, evolution at the same time. It's just so interesting. Let's just for a minute touch yeah. on the, are we talking about biohacking, meditation, spirituality, individual optimization, or are we talking about 
interpersonal, collective optimism. Well, nor- that's what I'm saying. Normally on the show, it's more just subjective, each person optimizing, right. and then that rippling out into the community at large, right? But we've sort of like zoomed out and are coming back in from the other direction. Just so here's a systemic why, model. Here's why we have to think about them together. If we work on increasing our cognitive capacity and our energy and et cetera so that we can do more of what's killing the world and we go extinct faster because of it. <laughs> right, right. We're optimizing ourselves to like integrate into a system that is not working. And that's most of it, right? Like That's interesting. We watched, as we started you know, Neurohacker, we were looking at um, the amount of smart drug sales going up and smart drugs that increased hyper-competing, increased motivation and drive, while decreasing empathy, decreasing creativity, and making hyper-competing psychopaths. Like modafinil? Less, <laughs> like, like Adderall. Oh, Adderall, okay. But modafinil can do things in that direction, and yeah. it's different. I, I just it came to, I don't do Adderall, but I do modafinil from time to time, and when I'm on modafinil, I don't think I've become a bad person, but I definitely am not interested in interfacing with other humans at all. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like very task oriented and locked into whatever I'm doing, which has its place, but it's definitely not like, hey man, I should go out and give some hugs right now. It's right. like, get out of my way, don't interrupt me, I'm focused. So how do we, this is the key thing is like, let's learn how to win at the game that is killing the world. Right. No, let's not right. do that. Right. Let's learn how to have the capacity to create a new game. That's really the, the thing that I want to emphasize here. And even the people who are winning at the current game are not living happy, meaningful lives for the most part. When we look at hypernormal stimuli, right, why it's so easy to get addicted to sugar, because in an evolutionary environment, we just didn't have sugar, right? We had a little bit of fruit, and the fruit was not hybridized. So, so there was a major evolved dopamine reaction to get it because the caloric density offered increased ability to survive a famine. Now we have so much fucking sugar, but we still have the same dopamine response. That That's a, a dangerous phenomenon, the hypernormal stimuli. And then we find that, of course, social media is a hypernormal stimuli because everybody's pictures are prettier than, than they actually are, and everybody's liking you and you're liking them, and you don't have to face like real difficulties of interaction, and it can be a huge number of people in a short amount of time. And, and porn is a hypernormal stimuli, and there's a whole generation of kids becoming adults who don't know how to relate to women, who don't know how to have sex properly, who have issues erectile and et cetera, because they have oversaturated a certain kind of stimuli and normal stimuli are actually, they're insensitive to it, right? And uh, video games are hypernormal. So we've had a world that's just all hypernormal stimuli, which is addiction, which always corresponds with less fulfillment, right? Because it's desensitizing you to actually getting pleasure from life. And so you need the hypernormal stimuli to get the um, the hit, and so you need the whatever it is, however many likes the, the, your thing gets. Or, and the hypernormal stimuli proliferates in the presence of hyponormal stimuli, which is we don't live in a fucking tribe, which is our evolutionary environment where we actually have real authentic interactions with lots of humans regularly. And so imagine in a tribe where you're dancing around the campfire regularly. Most people find that when they go camping with friends, they aren't checking their phone as much. Right after the first day or two, and the addiction kind of chills. In the presence of more authentic fulfillment, there is less emptiness pushing some hit. And so the society we've optimized for is a hyponormal stimuli to everything meaningful where everybody's fucking lonely and has some sense of meaninglessness and a lot of pressure, you know, together. And so then in that place, addiction is going to run rampant. 
And most people have 30 to 50 different addictive behaviors, meaning compulsive shit they know isn't good for them, they keep doing. Totally. That's really interesting because in the model of the 12 steps, which has been the the most effective single thing in removing deadly addictions from my life, uh, the model there is what I think people from the outside of that model think is that, oh, you go there and you quit drinking or you go there and you quit sex or overeating or whatever it is, you go to some 12-step group, uh, and that that's what your problem is, but that you get there, subjectively one gets there, and you go, oh shit, that was actually the symptom, right? So I'm addicted to heroin. Well, why? Because of everything you just described. So is this this uh, set of principles then going to just take that addiction away? No, what it's going to do is it's going to give me a framework to live by, spiritual principles, ineffable laws, right, that I can apply to my life to become uh, more fulfilled, and then the need for that thing that I was using goes away. And it's the strange, I mean, I've experienced this again and again and again using that model of getting the human connection and a spiritual connection and like living by those principles that kind of keep your mind and emotions in check, then the problem is removed. The principles represent a pretty small percent and the human connection represents a pretty large percent. Mm, like the group dynamic and the group support. There's I guess that it's many. that tribe we're missing, right? You walk into a room and there's 25 people in there that you might not know, but they, you understand one another on a deep level because you've both suffered in the same way. Think about it. How many people get the blue book, read it on their own, apply the principles, and quit their addiction? <laughs> Probably nobody. Nobody. That's funny. Now, That's funny. Whether they join that group or they be join the Christian group or they join whatever fucking, it's mostly the fact that we are actually social primates. Right. Evolved in a tribal environment. And so when, in the 12-step thing, what's happening is the main thing happening in those rooms is you have people having authentic sharing about things they don't normally get to share about so they feel seen, they see other people, and there's real intimacy. Right. And most of the time, again, the world praised us for certain very narrow things and we're optimizing for a lie all the time. Now, just because this is adjacent to a topic I want to discuss, this is one of the things that is most gruesome about social media, and I'll say most gruesome about the topic of personal branding. Um, and I'm using the word gruesome, you know, acknowledging what a strong <laughs> I, word it I is. I get it. I struggle with this a lot, so I'm looking forward to what you have to say. When someone creates a brand as a business, but even if not, they're just social media and there's a persona, right? But let's take the brand as a very clear example. Um, They're now a life coach, they're a yoga teacher, they're an Instagram model, or whatever the fuck it is, right? Which has become radically easier. It used to be a few people did that with based on the media tech. Now everybody gets to do some degree of this. Then what happens is I have a feedback, I have an analytics mechanism of how much people like my persona which is how many likes the thing gets and how many clicks and impressions and purchases, whatever, you know, thing. And so I'm going to now split test optimize my persona based on what people are responding to, and they're going to respond to hypernormal stimuli. And so the brand is going to get, based on the financial driver, based on the analytics, is going to evolve in the direction of what gets maximum engagement. It's going to get further and further from who I actually am. There'll be whole areas of who I am that I definitely don't share because they will actually be anti-correlated to what gets the like hit. And the more people are liking that thing now that I feel different than, the more depressed I feel. Right? The more addictive desire I have in that depression <laughs> to go great. get a hit right. and put out another fucking thing that's going to get a, a few right. hundred likes 
And the more I feel like a fraud and a phony and that if anyone really saw me, they wouldn't love me and I'm really unlovable and et cetera. Right. So in the 12-step room, the opposite of that's happening, right? Someone is actually saying, I'm a fucking fuck up. I just did all this dumb shit and they're like, I get it, me too. You're yeah. like, whoa, a real human interaction just occurred. Yeah, and which is rare, Yeah. which is really rare. And this starts to be the basis. It's not sufficient, right? But it starts to be the basis of a human life that doesn't drive addiction as a way to deal with the emptiness. Right. Remove the emptiness and then the need to run from it goes away. It's interesting, though, as you were talking about the, the social media persona and the profile, because I've owned a company for nine years, and it's, it's a company. It has its own identity. And then myself and my partner were the drivers or the face of that company at a certain point. But then we sort of phased out as we've gone in our own separate career paths and things, and mine's gone away from fashion. So I, I really enjoy the process of building a brand and a personality and you know coming up with your core values and the mission and like it's a thing, it's a living entity, which has been amazing. But I really struggled when I started the podcast and decided to get out of you know having this identity as a fashion stylist and a musician and all the things that I was so identified with before that I don't know, just ran their course or weren't my my true heart's passion. And so I decided to do this podcast and make this brand called Luke's Story, you know, have this thing, the lifestylist and you know, I really had a hard time with launching it. It was about two years ago because I didn't know how real I wanted to be or that I would have the courage to be and how forthcoming and just transparent and authentic I wanted to be about my past and my uh, struggles with addiction and just current struggles and everything. And so I, I kind of paused for a moment before I put anything out until I really was sure that I was willing to accept a possible rejection or other consequences of just being me. And I've done this social experiment now for about a year and a half where I've just pushed my, my own boundaries of transparency and authenticity just to see what would happen if I am in fact disliked or rejected or abandoned or ostracized by the world at large or what you call a following or a fan base or listeners or whatever. And it's been so bizarre. I've been talking about this a lot. The more goofy and real and just true I can be, like treating social media and my outward-facing persona and brand like I'm in a 12-step meeting and just like, hey, this is the shit I'm going through. I'm mean, with a certain degree of, um, you know, prudence, I guess. You know, I don't, you don't want to be lose your tact. You know what I mean? But I'm finding this spiritual explosion of growth and just allowing myself to finally be seen and to really accept myself and love myself. And what's so weird about it, and this is just this cosmic joke that I'm just constantly giggling at, is that I actually get more approval from showing these aspects of myself that I've always hidden because I was embarrassed about or you know my insecurities, my struggles. It's like, actually, people like me more for the things that I've been afraid for them to see my whole entire life. It's like this strange paradox, which on the other side of it, I've lived that. The side you were describing is like, oh, I'm going to present things in a certain way so that I'm liked. And I'm sure that's there to some degree, but I've kind of flipped that on its head. I'm just like, all right, how myself can I be? And what point at which do people go, all right, you're too much. We're, we're abandoning you. We actually don't like you, which is that sort of you know primal egoic fear. And I'm just having such a great time. Yeah. Like, Using social media actually as a tool to make myself uncomfortably vulnerable yeah. 
and then to find that it was a boogeyman. It's like a phantom fear. Who gives a shit if they like you or not? It's like if you have that self-worth, which I'm really starting to cultivate more actively, then I don't know, even the response doesn't matter. But it's fascinating when the response is positive to things that I would think like, oh God, now people are really going to think I'm an idiot or whatever, you know, just letting that be seen on a, on a macro, more public level. And then it's giving me the ability to do that more, as you mentioned, the word intimacy, you know, just with my friends to be like, hey, I just want to be real. I think it's one of my goals in life is to, you know, to someday pass on. And if, if anyone could say anything, just be like, at least he wasn't fucking phony. Yeah. You know, it's like just to be authentic and real, despite whatever false one might have. So, so in the world where... We have ubiquitous loneliness and ubiquitous depression. And without talking about it, everybody knows that. There is a longing for authenticity, right? And a longing for intimacy. And so people will respond to that. And so that's awesome, right? And I love that you're having that experience with people and sharing that experience with people. And anyone who wants to share themselves where there will be a personal brand, that's the only way to go it doesn't make their life suck and actually propagate shit in the world. Now, there will still be times where there is something that is less authentic that sells better. And this is where you have to say, okay, choosing between two masters, where, how do I make <laughs> right, this choice? Right, right. And it, it's a tricky one sometimes, but it's one to just have continuous awareness of and vigilance of. <laughs> so at a certain point, I guess you hit a threshold perhaps where you really have to start looking at things from scalability and from having a brand that's sustainable. Are you saying that at a certain point you are faced with a decision on editing the level of authenticity in order can, to... Our analytics say this particular market will like this part of your message, but not this part. If you gear it like this, you'll scale significantly. Right, right. And this particular hypernormal stimuli will get a lot of people to respond because addiction actually sells. Right. So now come back to capitalism for a minute, again, and the problem of it. Yeah. The more addicted people are, the better capitalism works. GDP goes up with more addiction, right? Because this is why there are not salad bars that have the scale of McDonald's, um, is because... If we make shit that is addictive as fuck because we just exploit the hypernormal stimuli button, people will buy it and have to keep buying it. And we do that with cigarettes, we do it. And, you know, with social media, this is like, you know, when Tristan Harris left Google and started talking about this and people started waking up to social media, Facebook, you know, or platforms of any kind, Google, they get paid by how much time, how many eyeballs spend how much time on site. Because the marketers or you know the advertisers are going to pay for that, so the goal is keep you have as many people spend as much time on site as possible. Now, what's actually good for you in your life is to get the fuck off of the screen and go interact with people. Right. But, right. But since we're going to get paid more by more time on site, then we're going to figure out the most addictive things to do with the newsfeed that will keep you clicking and you know paying attention right. um, as much as possible, and then justify why it's a good thing because we have to we have to do that right. And so then if you look at... <laughs> you, just, you just described a rift in so many of my relationships, you know, the woman, classic, like, what, do you have to be on Instagram, like, all day? I'm like, hey, this is my work. Like, <laughs> you know, that's always my excuse. It's part of my job. You know, it's an, it's an interesting thing because the studies keep rolling out of the more time people spend on screens, the more depressed they are. Oh, dude. And for a gazillion reasons, right? right? 
is there, for the most part, there isn't any real intimacy, authenticity, etc. in those interactions. If so, it's the tiniest fragment of the total time spent. And even to the degree there is, the real kinesthetic feedback of intimacy with another person is not happening. This doesn't mean there aren't good sides. Of course, the ability to have people talk with people in other parts of the world and be able to have messages that are valuable be shared has value. Those will be the parts that we solely focus on if we have a profit stream associated with it because we need to justify that. Right. This is where it becomes important to really look at what is meaningful. Now, come back for a moment to the individual optimization, right? Biohacking individual optimization. We're interested in people optimizing as individuals so that they have more capacity to actually do things that are meaningful. Because when people look at climate change and they look at species extinction and they look at refugee issues and et cetera, they're like, fuck, I don't know what to do with that. Let's go back on Facebook. Um, let's go back to work. Let's, but for the, and again, back to education, they're waiting for somebody to tell them what to do and do a good job at it as opposed to be able to self-assess in a very complex scenario what might actually be effective, because if anybody knew, it'd be fucking happening, right? To self-assess what needs to be done and then to actually start to initiate and, and do that and self-author. So individual optimization for that purpose is meaningful. But it's interesting how the pursuit of happiness is core to the mission statement of our country, right? And the pursuit of happiness is a is an oxymoron. It's a misnomer because when one is pursuing happiness, they will definitely not be happy. <laughs> yeah, you're inherently dissatisfied if you're seeking. Yeah, They're affirming their emptiness, lack of happiness, and they're in a fundamentally narcissistic pursuit. And happiness occurs when you let the narcissism go and actually connect meaningfully right. to the world. Right. And happiness is mostly this direction, not this direction. Right, mostly you the know, creativity. Yeah, and that also, that also unpacks another piece of, the, of addiction recovery is once one has enough stability, I mean, kind of the whole point of it is to then go help the next person that comes along that is struggling in ways in which you have. And then that's, that's where the magic happens. Right. Like That's when the lights turn on, when you make a difference. Right. Yeah. So. And it's not just because now you're affirming the principles to yourself and so you want to live them. It's that. But it's also because now your life actually has a sense of meaning exactly. where it doesn't need a hit from something else as much. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think, yeah, I, I figured that out pretty early on into my recovery, which was almost 21 years ago. Like, the first time I was even just together enough to have a car and give some kid a ride, you know, right. and just be of service. And that was like, God, I, I was experiencing the helper's high, and I didn't even know it. And now, to have the ability to do that on a, on a more broad scale of having a podcast and making these videos and talking to people like you and... And, the, and getting feedback, although it's not you know, a true connection, but like a direct message or a Facebook message. It's like, oh my God, I've struggled with X, Y, and Z, and I've been listening to your show, and now I'm getting over it. I mean, it's like, well, okay, my life has meaning and purpose, finally. Um, and not to say that being a plumber or working construction or working at a gas station or whatever wouldn't as well, because every, you know, there's people needed in all of these different areas, but to do the thing that I really love to do has been so fulfilling. And it directly helps people on a on a really deep level. Uh, so, God, man, that's funny. I was just gonna like touch on, like just sprinkle on a couple of the things that we went into. And uh, yeah, I have a feeling we'd have, I'm gonna have to be coming down a lot if you'll, if you'll have me because there's many conversations that need, to, uh, that need to happen. But I definitely wanna get into, you know, Neurohacker Collective, uh, what you guys are doing, uh, Qualia, just, Getting now that we sort of created a framework and a reason that someone would want to optimize themselves is other than just like, cool, now I can get more stuff for myself and be happier for myself, but to actually, 
you know, be a, a piece of biology and consciousness that can go out into the world and have some discernment in terms of what I want to put my energy into or not. So how did Neurohacker Collective come to be and what are you guys all about for those that are unfamiliar? Yeah, so uh, there's a few founders and they all had interesting different stories that kind of uh, came together. I'll, I'll share mine here. Is, um, so I was running a think tank that was working on the types of issues we're talking about, social issues. How do we actually have civilization self-organize well? And so one of the things we noticed, pretty easy to notice, is that all the problems we want to solve are problems that are caused by human action. Whether we're looking at species extinction or climate change or female genital mutilation or war, like these are human behavior mod topics, right? So how do we support humans to behave in ways that are good for themselves and good for the whole simultaneously without directly or indirectly causing harm? So then it's the question is, what are all the things that influence human behavior? Obviously, we talked about economics. If a particular action is incented, it's pretty hard to prevent it, right? So how do we create an economic system where the whale is not worth more dead than it is live if we don't if we want to have any whales? That's a big right. topic. Right. How do we create you know, social systems? And tech influences our behavior. Our environment influences our behavior. Our psychology, our worldview, our definition of what is fundamentally meaningful to, does. But our biology also influences our behavior. And everybody who has ever had a pretty significant sickness or even just had their hormones out of balance or a hangover knows that your physiology can go into a state that affects your psychology and your cognitive capacity and disposition significantly where if your neurotransmitters are off or your hormones are off or etc in a particular way accessing gratitude or happiness or hope it might be very very hard and um, staying out of anger, frustration, etc., might be very hard. And that's going to affect behavioral, not only their own suffering, but also behavioral predispositions. Same with complex thinking. I've actually got to be able to have a decent working memory to be able to hold multiple perspectives at once and synthesize them. If I don't have enough working memory to hold multiple perspectives at the same time, I'll default into a simplistic perspective. So, Right, which is why malnourished people are so easy to brainwash, right? That is a part of it, yeah. <laughs> and, and so the, uh, you know, the thing we started looking at there is how does physiology affect human predisposition, not just their own experience, but how likely they are to behave violently or um, behave charitably, psychopathy, empathy, you know, types of dynamics, and also the ability to understand complex things, the emotional resilience to hang in with them in difficult times. And as we're understanding more about mind-brain interface, there is a bi-directional interface. Both influence each other. As we're looking at the way the brain and the physiology affect the mind, right, the, the emotion and the cognitive dimensions, uh, we, it's not just a genetic, like, oh, you're, you have a genetic predisposition for psychopathy, therefore you're a psychopath. Typically, the genetic predispositions for a psychiatric thing are, are genes that do something like process a specific nutrient, right? Like, we'll, we'll look at psychiatric issues from genes that process the methylation of a B vitamin or the, the excretion of a mineral like copper and zinc or something. And so if those nutrients are necessary for a specific type of brain function like empathy or impulse control and they're not being processed well, then you might not be able to have impulse control. And what we actually can do about it is without changing your genome, just actually say, oh, the gene that would code for the transform of this vitamin isn't happening. We can just give the post-transform version of the vitamin and that mental illness is actually better. So this is the kind of field of integrative psychiatry and psychopharmacology. And I started seeing how many of the dynamics that address the world have a physiologic component to them and starting to look at, could we upregulate the neural networks that mediate empathy? 
that mediate impulse control, that mediate emotional resilience, that mediate complex thinking, that mediate a sense of agency. So the human bio-hardware was not only predisposed to feel better, but also predisposed to have increased capacity and behave in ways that are fundamentally more you know, pro-social, which just does correspond with healthier too. Right? And it's interesting because we're evolving in a social environment. Healthy people are pro-social. Right? Think about a psychopath in a tribe doesn't make it very well. Right? They're going to get killed or taken out of the tribe or they're going to get better. But they don't actually get to be in a social, deep social environment without pro-social behavior and, and work. And so Neurohacker started for me with a deep exploration into understanding how we can affect human physiology in ways that decreases suffering, increases capacity, and positive disposition. The first product we launched, Qualia, was one of many, and this next year a bunch of the additional ones are coming out in various categories. Oh, cool. Oh, I'm excited. And, the I'm, reason- I'm, and I want to get into the Qualia thing, because people, I get a lot of inquiries about it, and I'm... I'm so into it, <laughs> but we'll, we'll go into that. So a little, a little of the framework, but I, I definitely want to cover that because it's exciting. So in a world where we have so much distraction from all of the things going off from social media and on the phone and et cetera, with so much hyper-competitive pressure to try and produce, almost everyone has a pretty strong sense of pressure to want to be able to focus better and to be able to have more sustained attention and get shit done while having a pretty significant challenge doing that. And not only the you know, focus issues like from distraction, but insufficient nutrients that are necessary, certain kinds of toxic exposure that affects the brain, you know, et cetera. So, so we see this ramp in energy drinks, so more and more caffeine, and in smart drug usage. And, um, and so with smart drugs in particular, which in contradistinction to Brain nutrients are things that you would just get from a normal healthy diet, but we probably don't get enough because of depleted topsoil and whatever else, right? And those are just nutrients that in our evolutionary environment were necessary for brain function. Now, we also didn't try to do 12 hours of productive work that was cognitive per day in an evolutionary environment, so we're using nutrients differently. So we might have increased nutrient need. We've obviously got radically decreased topsoil density. Interesting. Right. So going out and collecting acorns for a couple hours that day or hunting for rabbits or whatever is quite different from sitting down and solving the complex problems that we are in this technological age. So, you know, deficiency is pretty rampant. Different kinds of toxicity, like, you know, just the volatile organic compounds in this paint and this carpet uh, are, you know, there's... hundreds of VOCs in the air that we're breathing, just normal stuff, right? Let alone industrial pollution in the atmosphere and, and, and glyphosate and agriculture and whatever else. And they're almost all either carcinogens or neurotoxins or endocrine disruptors and like, it's a significant issue. So we've basically, as, as tool builders, we've built a world that we're not adapted for. And so how do we deal with that? We were looking at the cognitive issues, one of the first ones, there are many, we looked at, you know, issues related to anxiety and depression and pain and addiction and sleep and those are all things we'll talk about. But, you know, we saw this meteoric rise of energy drinks, so they're doing $15 billion domestically per year wow. of, of wow. you know, 300 milligrams of caffeine at a time. And, and God knows what else, man. Yeah. <laughs> Anytime I see someone drinking one of those things, I'm just, like, I mean, because every once in a while on a 7-Eleven, I'll just pick something up. Not like I'm going to buy it, but I just read the ingredients out of just morbid curiosity. And I'm like, oh my God, it's like so toxic, man. So... You know, the artificial flavors, sweeteners, colors are not adding to brain health. Dude, and, and just the, the thing when you go buy a drink is the water. It's 
fluoridated tap water in most cases that's really the bulk of what you're getting. And when you buy a 12-ounce whatever drink, you're drinking a bunch of tap water. You've got you know that kind of rise. And you see with smart drugs, obviously we have a lot of people on prescription, Adderall, Wellbutrin, Vyvanse, Modafinil for um, psychiatric disorders, for cognitive disorders. And there's a pretty big question about what percentage of those actual prescription cases are good for people. I'm stating that conservatively. Um, but then we have all the people on off-label right, use, which is not even prescribed. They're just black market, you know, universities, midterm and final Adderall sales everywhere, right? And even Wellbutrin, Depernel, lots of different things. Um, and so estimate is something like $15 billion a year also in off-label smart drug sales, something like $5 billion in Adderall. And it, they work, right? Like they work for a very narrow set of metrics. So if I want to focus, get my midterm done or my tech startup or whatever it is, the dopaminergic dynamics from the Adderall are going to make me focus better and have more motivation and more drive. Now, some of the interesting things that we find is because it's just modifying dopamine and not looking at acetylcholine and what, how it's involved in memory, not looking at glutamate, not looking at all of the rest of neurochemistry, and, and not even looking at all of the dopamine process, just typically one small part that one synthetic molecule is going to override, you get certain effects and certain side effects and certain missing effects, right? So we get increased focus, but we don't get increased memory. We actually get decreased memory of certain kinds with Adderall, decreased creativity, and then decreased empathy. Increased anxiety, aggressiveness, sometimes depersonalization, derealization, decreased task switching, you know, et cetera. And th these are really important things. So, and because even insofar as we're affecting dopamine, we're just overriding a regulatory system, providing a whole bunch of an in-chain chemical, not actually saying, how does this system regulate its own dopamine and how can we support it to do that? Then we're going to create dependence and addiction. And so these were the things that I saw was a scaling amount of dependence and addiction and very narrow positives with a lot of the positives that were necessary missing and meaningful side effects. So the question in that space, we worked with people in, a, in an integrative medical clinical environment to, when we had their genomics, we had their blood labs, we had brain scans, to customize chemistry that helped them tremendously. So we knew we could do that. And the question was, can we do that at scale without personalization? Which I didn't know, because personalization is a big deal. And we're working towards methods to be able to personalize. There are some things that I just won't do widely because they have to be personalized. They're so different person to person. So like right, right. we don't have any type of folate or folic acid because whether someone should be on a methylated or a non-methylated folate makes such a really big difference that right. we just don't fuck with that axis if we can't personalize it. Yeah. But there are a lot of axes that everyone who is self-selecting into a particular kind of thing, like something for cognitive enhancement, do pretty well across the whole board. So you know, high success and well-tolerated. So what we wanted to do with quality was say, can we make an alternative so that people don't have to go to just tremendous amounts of caffeine or off-label smart drugs or just suffer without the ability to focus that will actually help them in what they're looking for with enough subjective effect that they actually feel it and that will actually have a much wider host of positive effects that we're getting focus and concentration and drive, but also emotional resilience and task switching and creativity and analysis and synthesis. And, you know, so we, we started by doing a, a kind of cognitive map of what are all of the states and all of the capacities that people are looking for when they're really wanting to do productive work. And then saying, what are the underlying physiologic pathways that mediate those that we know about from the various neuroscientific and bioscience fields? 
And then can we understand how those systems work? So how does the body regulate dopamine? So, you know, as you start to look at it, you say, all right, so protein comes in dietarily, gets broken down to amino acids, phenylalanine converts into tyrosine, converts to N-acetyltyrosine, converts to L-dopa, crosses the blood-brain barrier, converts to dopamine in a presynaptic neuron, transport a protein down an axon, crosses a synapse, has to get by synaptic enzymes that will break it down in different ways, hydroxylase and MAOB and COMT and et cetera, and then goes into one of a few dopamine receptors. There's intercellular dynamics that are involved. So you just start to look at that and say, how does the body do this thing on its own? And are there deficiencies in any of those key nutrients or transform factors or things that are oftentimes under fully supported that we can support? And that would be just looking at dopamine, right? Then you do that with acetylcholine. Then you look at glutamate. Then you look at functions like neurogenesis. Bodies continuously developing new neurons. Are there things that actually support increased neurogenesis or neuroautophagy, killing old neurons better so you don't have senescent neurons? So we looked at what are the host of things people are looking for that are healthy states and capacities? What is the underlying physiology involved? How does that physiology naturally regulate? And what what, what might we be able to do to support the natural regulatory systems so that people both have a more complete positive state and that rather than create dependence, right, they're on it for a while, we overrode their regulatory system and now there's addiction, that it actually is supporting the robustness of the regulatory system so that when they get off it, there is elevation from baseline that lasts, right, the exact opposite of side effect and the exact opposite of dependence. So that was our goal, and so we did hundreds of iterations, a bunch of testing, you know, after doing full literature review, database of 500 nootropic chemicals and looking at the pathways of them and then looking at positive synergies, negative synergies, delivery mechanisms. And we ended up getting to this formula, you know, that's there right now, which over a large enough number of people, over a large enough amount of time, tested well enough that we were actually really happy with it. And so that's that first product. And it, the goal there was to be able to support people having increased productive capacity, right? increased cognitive clarity and the associated emotional states like resilience and, and drive um, that was actually not bad for people and good for people. Now, I can't claim that we know that because we haven't done long enough term trials with enough metrics, with enough controls to claim all of it, but you know we've done preclinical trials with pre and post brain scans and biometrics and seen you know really meaningful statistical um, correlation cool. and change and we've had I don't know 40,000 people over three years where we're collecting data from what their experience is really and, and wow. um, so we we're very happy about that and that's the first yeah. product and you know yeah. what what it kind of is is a complex approach because our brain is a complex system body's a complex system. So rather than here's one molecule to override it, it's how does it self-regulate and can we support its self-regulation across many related axes? Now, if we were going to approach anxiety, we would do it the same way. If we were going to approach pain rather than, you know, just some NSAID or opiate, we would do it the same way. How does the body naturally produce its own opiates? How does it naturally deal with inflammation? How does it, and can we support those dynamics? If we were going to work with sleep, we'd do it the same way. So um, those are this you is know, exciting. The things that are coming next. <laughs> I'm like, I can't wait to see what you guys are coming up with next. Uh, so there's a couple of things in there that I really like is that you guys really were very thoughtful about the synergy between the different compounds. I think a, there's a lot of cowboys and Indians right now in the nootropic space, as I'm sure you're aware, where you see the same kind of 
formulations on 10 different products and it's like one guy just looked at what the next guy's doing on the label oh yeah i hear that's good for short-term memory focus cognition whatever blah blah and they just kind of throw those stacks out there without necessarily forethought as to how those interact with one another right so you have one molecule and it does one thing and let's just even say that 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 effect of that molecule is universal and you're choosing ones that are kind of universally affecting people in the same way but then you combine that with other molecules and other ones and other ones, and now you have something totally different. You have a third-party compound now, right? And so that can go well or not um, based on self-experimentation. There's been times where I've taken too many different things at the same time and too much of them, and I'm having the opposite effect where I can't focus and I'm actually feel like I'm freaking nuts because I took too many smart drugs or whatever. But I think what's cool about qualia is that you really looked at how things relate to one another that uh, you're not putting anything in there that's going to cause your body to downregulate its own production where, to the point where there's a dependency and, oh my God, now I can't make this neurotransmitter or whatever because I've, it's been done for me for so long. And then also that the whole basis of it is coming from what I like about the company itself is that it's coming from this intention that we're trying to create people with biology that runs better so they'll be better people. I mean, to me, that makes total sense. I had the flu a couple of months ago, and I was in Colorado, and I had to speak at two events, and they were pretty substantial for me, and I was so sick, dude, and I could not make myself be in a good mood. Like, I, I literally just couldn't be happy, you know? It's just I was just depressed, and even though my mind was right and I wasn't fighting it, I wasn't, like, caught in some sort of negative spiral. I wasn't actually negative at all. I just wasn't in a good mood. I didn't feel happy like I do right now. So I wasn't firing on all cylinders, you know? So I really think that you do have to approach your own development from all sides. In other words, I can't be eating, you know, glyphosate and aspartame and all this evil things that they put in food and just think I can meditate my way into a higher consciousness while I'm destroying my biology. And in the same way, I can't become obsessed with herbs and superfoods and nootropics and then be running around flipping people off in traffic, caught in my trauma issues, you know? It's like you have to kind of approach it from all angles. So I like that you're not like, hey, you guys, let's make a cool vitamin that makes people better at computer work. It's like, no, we have a larger scope uh, of vision, which is really cool. Now, back to the qualia, it's been interesting to observe the friends that I've uh, turned on to it and, uh, you know, listeners of the show and stuff like that is that I've, I've yet to have anyone say that they had a negative experience as a result. Where with a lot of other nootropics, people say that it's too stimulating or it made them tired, made them like this, made them like that. Uh, so I've had no one report back like, oh my God, I felt horrible. And uh, only a couple people that were like, meh, I didn't really notice anything. Yeah. So... The majority of people that I've interacted with that have tried are like, oh my God, this is the best thing ever. Like, wh where has this been my whole life? Like an overwhelmingly positive experience. And that's what it's been like for me too, which is one of the reasons I wanted to track you down and I found out there was so much more to your story than just being like, you know, a guy that knows about nootropics. Um, but for me, what's been interesting, speaking of especially the, the down regulation piece, is that when I started, I took the full dose. Uh, I think it was three of number one and six of number two, and I did that a lot. And it kind of just brought me up to a nice base level. And then at a certain point, that became a little too stimulating. And now I'm like, I take one number one, two number two, and I'm like, I feel great. There's no need to even push it beyond that. 
So it actually has the opposite effect of building up a tolerance, say, right? That was intended. Yeah, so good job on that. Because with most other things, you take it and you take it and you build up a tolerance, you need more and more, and then your body forgets how to make it and you end up in this imbalance. But I I think that there's just something really cool about what you've done. I'm going to come back to the problems of capitalism for a minute. Yeah. Every MBA student learns one of the first principles of business is maximize lifetime revenue of a customer. <laughs> right, and right. So you guys are blowing it because now I'm like, I need to. I, I was on auto ship of quality because I was pounding so much of it. And now I'm like, actually, I'm getting too many shipments. I had to stop that and just order when I run out because I'm going to run out. It's so you guys, right. your business model is going against that theory. So go on. So you think about it from a, say I'm a pharma company. And... There are MBAs that are looking at the financial instruments and uh, making decisions, right? Um, I mean, at the financial metrics and spreadsheets and, and saying, okay, maximize lifetime revenue of a customer. The things that treat symptoms forever. So we say depression is not curable. You have a biochemical imbalance, which is like some magic term, biochemical imbalance, what the fuck causes it, right? Genetic, which is just, just a magic term for we don't know or we haven't bothered to look at it in, in depth. And so we have to symptomatically treat that forever. Heart disease, always symptomatically treat that forever. Cholesterol, we're going to treat it. Fucking all of them, right? So that's very good from a lifetime revenue point of view. And if it creates side effects that need other drugs to resolve them, that's called a cross-sell or an upsell. Perfect. Right? <laughs> and that's so, amazing. And then if to maximize lifetime value, I want to start them as young as possible. So we make up new diseases like ADD after we put kids in those Ritalin. shitty... Um, desks and oh, do they still make those desks like they had in yeah. the seventies? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> those little wooden prisons. Oh god! So we get them started yeah. as early as possible on an iatrogenic cycle, right? So pretty much everything that happens in medicine, we wanted to do the opposite. If it causes addiction, we want to create long-term benefit. If it causes side effects, we want the side effects to be comprehensively positive. If the people have to stay on it, we want them to be able to get off of it, right? That, like that's the goal, and so. Really, theory of market should not apply to medicine because people really can't choose to not participate with something that will make them better if they're sick. And since they really can't choose not to do that, theory of markets is a fucked up thing, just like there shouldn't be for-profit prisons, right? And so this was hard for us because then it's why we started with supplement as opposed to bigger things we could have done is because I didn't want to take capital from any um, financial service places that would then bind us to doing things that were unethical. So like our right. our cost of goods to make qualia is more expensive than most nootropics retail. And it's because if you want to use the right form, right, you use the phosphorylated version of this and the methylated version of this and et cetera, and with the right concentration of the dose, you notice you take nine fucking capsules. Yeah. With, and that's not filler, it's because it just takes that yeah. much of those things. It's just expensive. Now, yeah. And We're also the to, fact that you guys aren't using excipients and binders and all that weird stuff, which I always notice right away. I'm like, I, I go to the end of the label and it's something like, that. Oh, yeah, there it is. Which means that you can't work with almost any manufacturers because that's right. what they need to make it work in their machines. Right. The magnesium stearate and all this stuff, right? Yeah. So um, all, all of that, like doing the integrity thing is just a hard thing to make work fiscally. But like you have found with your podcast, if you do, there will be people that are attracted to that thing and it can grow. So that's what we're trying to do. We'll be right back after this important announcement. Hey, check this out. I recently launched something on my site called The Master Market. It's a super cool store where I've got different categories, whether it be spirituality, mind focus, outdoors, food, superfoods, supplements, bedroom, sleep, office, jet lag, biohacking. There's even a bookstore from some of my favorite books and 
books recommended by my guest. And what this is, is like a hub where you can go find all of the links to everything I've either used and vetted or I'm currently using in my life to build the ultimate lifestyle. So it's called The Master Market, Luke's Lifestyle List, and you can find it at lukestory.com forward slash store. Just go to my site and you'll see it in the navigation. Now, what's really cool about this is when you make a purchase through my store, I'm not actually selling you anything. I'm just curating a really dope place where you can go find the best stuff. So I get a piece of commission if you make a sale through the site. The vendor, of course, makes some cash because you buy and you get a place where you can go and save time and money from not having to look around for the best stuff and do all the research yourself. But what's even cooler is most of those items come with a custom discount code if you go through my site, which is pretty cool. So it's a win, 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 triple trifecta win. Great way to support my work and the podcast and the show, as well as the brands and your own health and well-being. Check it out. LukeStory.com forward slash store. And now back to the interview. So in terms of the other things that people typically use, I want to just run run a couple of these by you because I take my qualia, I guess about five days a week. And as I said, it's been strange that my dosage has gone down. It must be fixing me. That's the way I look at it. Like it's it's connecting synapses or something that were off and now they're they're getting more in alignment. That's the way I look at it. But there's other things too that depending on where I'm going, what I'm doing, I find to be useful. So today, for example, I knew that I was going to have a very social day. I'm going to be talking to you. I'm being interviewed on the way back home after this. So I did a number of different things, one of them being um, Fenibit, for example, which I'll maybe do once a week or something like that. And I just find it's just a really great social lubricant. And and also took some paracetam because I find that uh, it really helps me with speech. Some of these other things I'll do, but I could give Joe here paracetam and it'll give him anxiety. Yeah. Or he won't notice anything. Or I give someone else, I gave a girlfriend once Fenibut and um, she probably took a little bit too much, but she got deathly ill, you know, and on what I would take for just, it's like a sprinkle to me. And to her, she was a bit smaller and it just had this huge adverse reaction. Uh, same thing, uh, modafinil is another one that I really like. And for me, I take an eighth, a dose of modafinil for me is an eighth of one tablet. So it's like a 200 milligram tablet. Once I took a half, I was like, oh my God, I feel like I'm on crystal meth, not fun. A quarter, if I'm really, really tired, set me straight. But if I just want to have a productive day and be relatively alert, just a tiny, tiny little piece, which is about an eighth of a tablet does me. I've given it to friends. I'd say, man, be careful. This is a, this is a drug, this is not an herb, like go easy. They take a half, they're like, I didn't feel anything. They take another half, they're like, meh, I didn't notice anything. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, if I took a whole modafinil, I would be like, you know, scrubbing the freaking bathroom floor with a toothbrush. I mean, I would be tweaking so hard. So what's up with some of those, like you mentioned Depronil. I was on like low-dose Depronil for a while. I mean, I've tried a lot of different things. Outside of the safe and more plant-based stuff that you guys work with in Qualia, what are some of the other ones or even microdosing on psilocybin, like that whole other world of smart drugs and nootropics, what do you got to say about any of that? Sure. Let's make some categories here. So we've got uh, smart drugs as a category, which are pharmaceuticals that are usually being used for an off-label purpose. They're oftentimes um, psych meds, like Wellbutrin or Adderall, or they are narcolepsy meds, like Modafinil, or they are sometimes anti-Parkinson's meds. 
Um, Dev Parnell? Yeah. Right? <laughs> I remember when I was taking that stuff, mm-hmm. someone was like, what is that? It's no big deal. It's for Parkinson's. <laughs> I'm just microdosing it. Now, all of those are dopaminergics, right? So for different purposes, they're dopaminergics. You'll have some, like for Alzheimer's, uh, donepazil that work with the same Does, does ergics mean they raise dopamine? Okay. No wonder I like all of those. Yes. So uh, you've got you know, various types of smart drugs is one category. Most of the time, those are going to have a pretty strong effect and a pretty decent chance of side effect if used improperly. There's really nothing that is going to be all that dangerous if used properly, but properly is the big thing, right? Like whether we're talking, I mean, you can use heroin not dangerously if you, if you use it properly, but that's like not how people use, use heroin. And specifically, Adderall is amphetamine, right? It's a D-amphetamine. You add a methyl group to it and you have methamphetamine. Uh, methamphetamine used to be a pharmaceutical. And so, like, the distinction between pharmaceuticals and illegal drugs is uh, where the legal categorization of the minute happens to be based on lobbying, not based on much else. So you've got smart drugs as a category, and in general, people should explore there if they are well-educated, if, like, if they really educate themselves well about the topic, and, they, and they're really paying attention in a quantified self kind of way to the results, and they should not be looking at doing that super regularly. Now, there are exceptions. So Depranil, for instance, works through MAOB inhibition. Uh, so MAOB is a enzyme in the synapse that breaks down certain neurotransmitters, like dopamine, like other catecholamines, like phenylethylamine. So if you um, inhibit the MAOB, those neurotransmitters will get across the synapse more into the postsynaptic neuron. Um, this can be very dangerous because um, if you take that with anything that is also increasing monoamines, going those types of neurotransmitters going into the synapse, specifically ones that should be broken down by MAOB, they can get to too high a level. So one wants to be careful with that. And so not, what would be some things that you, with Depranil, for example, that you wouldn't want to combine with that? Adderall. Ah, interesting. And that doesn't mean nobody does it and has a good experience. It what means, about modafinil? Now, they're different. Modafinil... We don't know all the mechanisms of modafinil that well. It is the least symptomatic dopaminergic for the most part for most people. It seems like it works through transporter proteins largely, which is going to be a little bit less tricky than many of the other mechanisms. But um, if, if you are flooding the synapse with dopamine and not breaking it down, you can get to dangerously high levels, right? Um, and not everyone has too high MAOB. Genetically, some people's MAOB is too low. They actually feel anxious because they have too many of those excitatory neurotransmitters. And Debra uh, would make them feel terrible. But there are a lot of people who are genetically overproducers of MAOB. And they will have certain kinds of depression tendencies because their transmitters are just not getting across the synapse that well. And if they take something that's just increasing their level of dopamine, they might feel better, but it's actually not doing the right part of the mechanism, right, and the right part of the pathway of what's going on for them. If they actually break down the excessive levels of MAOB that they're genetically producing, and there's other things that can cause MAOB to go up other than just genetics. It's inducible. And so as people age, MAOB goes up, dopamine goes down, it's a part of aging, which is why Depranil is one of the few drugs that is actually correlated to be a life extension agent. And there are people who, when they're young, wouldn't do well with it. When they're older, they would, because their MAOB levels went from a healthy place where it would imbalance them to being excessive, and now balances them. 
So Depernil can actually be therapeutic for some people. For other people, it'll be an enhancement that they shouldn't do regularly. So to the degree you're getting into stronger tools, you should have more education, just like in any field, right? Like playing with the skill saw rather than the hand saw, you kind of need to learn a little bit more because there's more consequence, but you can also do cooler stuff with it. So for us, empowered responsibility and self-education is a really key thing because we want people to be empowered in their own health and not just feel like a victim and waiting for someone to tell them what to do who has no way of knowing what their own experience is or spending enough time, even if it's a well-educated doctor where their fiscal structure only allows them to spend five minutes of time. Like They just can't apply what they know right. that well. Right. So smart drugs is one category. Research chemicals is another category where you have a bunch of chemicals that are not actually categorized as a drug. They're also not categorized as a nutraceutical. They are for research purposes only, and they live in that kind of regulatory bardo. And that's most of the nootropics. Like the racetams and whatnot? The racetams are in that category, mm. the, and the ampicines. Those are the kind of two primary categories that people get into. But then also the NSI-189, the P21, the cerebrolysin, the lots of the phenobut, right? They live in that research chemical category. And some of those are basically smart drugs that just didn't go through approval. But And then some of them are more what we'd call a formal nootropic, which is something that can increase some aspect of cognitive performance without meaningful side effect. Most smart drugs will have some side effect unless it, it happens to be one that's therapeutic for you. And then we've also got brain nutrients, which are just the amino acids, fatty acids, vitamins, minerals that the brain needs to function well that are often deficient. And then you've got botanicals and you know plants that modulate different things in different ways. And botanicals can be very powerful, right? You can you can get L-dopa from Macuna, which is a Parkinson's med, <laughs> in different dose, right? It's not the same kind of dose, but you can get very potent botanicals. So all those categories are things to play with. And of course, as people really get into biohacking and neurohacking and become well educated, you've got different delivery mechanisms. People do them subcutaneous or IM or IV or snort stuff, intranasal or, you know, whatever, right? So there's a big interesting field, and some of them can also be not just cognitive enhancing for normal well-being, but very therapeutic if someone is dealing with a post-TBI situation, something that is neurogenic that enhances development of new neurons after they had some microbrain damage can be very helpful. There's a whole lot to learn. So one of the things we're working on is really competent education and you know, community space so that people can learn this well. Right now, it's forums on Reddit and, um, you know, places like that where people can yeah. learn you really have to sort if the info yeah. is good or not. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny uh, now, too, with the algorithms online, uh, search results are very skewed oftentimes. Like, I was looking for something a couple of days ago that was something political and it was a little bit conspiratorial. I think I was researching um, the number of times CNN's been busted for lying and producing fake news. And I Googled, like, how much, how many times has CNN been caught doing fake news in 2007? Something like that. And I phrased it a few different ways and nothing came up. You know, you can't find an article if you use Google to find that, for example. And it's the same way when you start looking for some of this stuff. You'll read something on a forum and you're like, okay, this guy says this about modafinil or fenomen or whatever. And then literally you get to the next 10 sites and it's the same exact copy you know, that some other schmo has like copy and pasted into his blog or some other forum. And you're like, wait, they're all getting the same you know, five talking points from the same place. So even if you are a good researcher, sometimes it's hard to come up with 
original valid data uh, just because it doesn't exist. You know, like you said, with some of these things that are in that gray zone in terms of their categorization, it's it sometimes it's difficult to even educate yourself because you don't know what's so let me true give you and false. A classic example: we had a scenario where people had questions about is centrophenoxine safe, and because even on some very good nootropic sites, it says centrophenoxine might cause birth damage, um, birth defects. And because centrophenoxine converts to DMAE, which is a cholinergic choline donor, and there were some studies that showed DMAE causing birth defects in rats. Now, people would do their research and say, well, you should avoid that, you know, in in that scenario. Now, to actually get into it, um, if we get out of, if we really look at the rat studies and we say, what kind of dosage through what administration is it relevant to normal dosage? No, the it's nothing in a normal oral dosage range was there at all. It was, it was even close. DMAE actually became approved as a drug without that being a concern in many different countries. And then centrophenoxine never had any birth defect studies. And so yet, that's all over the web. Centro- don't do it because of birth defects. Right, right. <laughs> right now, right. <clears throat> we pulled every single study ever done on centrophenoxine we could find, 186 studies, most of which weren't online. We had to go to medical libraries find them in other countries and other languages, right? Because they, they were they started, the research started in the 50s, so they just were never put online. Translate wow. them all, and then we had a few PhDs in neurochemistry, neuroanatomy, et cetera, do a structured literature review, meta-analysis of all that for us to come up to it with our opinion on Centro. Damn. This is not a trivial thing to do, wow. but it matters if you really yeah. kind of want to know what's going on. So I like the Wild West of the space because people are starting to take more responsibility rather than just wait for their doctor to tell them what to do and then get mad at the doctor when it doesn't work. Yeah. When the doctor couldn't possibly spend enough time with them or keep up to date with all the research happening. But I really do long for higher quality control and it's one of the things we're working on and we can only work on it as fast as we can afford without moving into fiscal models that suck, which is the, the tricky part. But like neurotech, you know, we were talking about different devices that we have around the house and PMF and et cetera. It's pretty easy to say this seems compelling, let's share it. Well, what we're working to do right now is with all the f- types of neurotech, whether we're talking about um, low-level laser therapy and transcranial intranasal lasers, or we're talking about PMF or TMS or you know whatever, right? Uh, for us, it's a process of doing the full literature review on everything that's known about this, where who, what things does it affect, what things does it not affect, safe, et cetera, and then doing full research on the actual products and say, does this product have the specifications that the literature shows are useful and then curate those things. So we're building a platform to do that. It's just a non-trivial process. And the same with just curating knowledge on uh, nootropics is in the forum, you've got like some real gems and then a bunch of shit and it's not necessarily obvious which ones are the gems and the shit. Same like if you look in the bodybuilder world and you go to the steroid forums, some of the smartest endocrinologists anywhere are in there. And then there's just so much dumb bro science in there, right? And it's like, <laughs> right, but, right. but if you don't know the field well, they're all saying shit you don't know. Right. Um, right. So this is something that we're really working to do is to have a moderation process where everything that goes there is vetted. That's cool, man. That's cool. That's, that's a really valuable resource. Because I, that's the exciting, you know, another positive thing about right now is that I think more people are waking up to the fact that they don't actually have to rely on the allopathic medical system. Like I have episodes and I call them things like learning to become your own doctor. You know, it's like you really can do a lot on your own. And then if you're if you are tied into someone good in functional medicine and they're able to kind of, you know, be 
a step above you in terms of their body and knowledge. But I, like with my relationship to medicine is I do a lot of my own research and footwork and order my own labs and geek out on like which labs are the best and most updated because even my functional medicine doctor, they're still in the labs that were the best GI test last year. I'm like, no, man, in the biohacking community, there's new labs with, you know, um, new uh, parameters and things like that, and I really feel the sense of power and autonomy because I'm, you know, I know my limitations in terms of my body of knowledge and what I'm even capable of, kind of understanding or care to take the time to learn when it comes to my biology. But I know what I know, and then I go to the experts that are higher up the food chain in, in their area of special specialization, right? So it's really cool that um, that you guys are thinking that far ahead and enabling people to help themselves. One of the parts I'm most excited about is um, a uh, integrative medical, functional medical program. So we've got a number of doctors who are kind of the best integrative psychiatrists that I'm aware of. Mm, and cool. psychiatrists or just functional medicine that does psychoneuropharmacology. And so, uh, you know, we're not allowed to provide medical information, prescribe, diagnose, treat, anything like that, right? So if people, and if someone is on, has psychic conditions or are on psych meds, we say don't use our stuff because there's, there's real interactions that need to be factored. But we don't want to just say go to your doctor if your doctor doesn't know anything. We want to provide better resources. So go to your doctor and here are doctors that actually know the field really well. They can run a QEG on you. They can run neurohormones, they can run your Walsh metabolic labs, they can run your gut-brain axis, they can look at your genomics, et cetera, and actually do the, the best of what functional brain chemistry optimization currently looks like. And um, so that's something that we'll be rolling out in this next year and that we've been already working with a number Dude, of clinics on. Dude, that's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, because you do need that, that middleman, you know, <laughs> unless you're just a freaking genius and you have the time and energy to devote to yourself. But I think each one of us can only take it to a certain level and we need, you know, we need that help. But it's like, how do you find a good one? I always get the question of who's the best functional medicine doctor. And I'm just, I just made it easy on myself after working with a number of, of them individually. And I just joined Parsley Health, which is like a, you know, sort of, I think of it as the uber of functional medicine, just a, a modern interface and a membership model rather than paying per visit. And, um, and I find it to be really effective because they can deal with my insurance and the billing and they know how to code the labs and stuff. But it's still very much self-directed. Like I could just follow their program, probably be healthy, but I'm always digging deeper. So I'll do, you know, three different tests for metals where they might just order me the pre and post challenged urine test. I'm like, cool, that gives me a certain metric, but there's hair analysis, there's blood, there's other ways you can dive into that. But it's helpful to have someone you trust that'll go along with what you're doing. Because back in the Western medicine model, I go into the general practitioner and be like, hey, I have X, Y, and Z wrong. They send me out to a number of specialists that are their cronies. And it's like you get stuck in that whole thing. And I'm going in there telling them about some new supplement or technology. And the doctor's like, what? I, I don't even know about that. You know, like the, I was having some problems with like vertigo and dizziness. And I, I you know, went up the, the ladder in the L.A. medical system, which I think is probably a pretty good place to live if you want some, you know, high level medical care. And I got sent to the, you know, the world's best EMT that people travel from all over the world. I go sit down with this guy. I said, yeah, man, I don't know, man. I have, you know, I have a little hearing loss over here. It's about 20%. I'm well aware of that. But I have this thing where I'm getting dizzy all the time and I always feel car sick. And he ran some tests on me. I came in again. He goes, yeah, I think you probably should just not drink coffee 
I think it's the the caffeine can do that. I'm like, really? This is what you guys, this is the best you guys can do? Is that the caffeine is making me, you know, it was just like, oh my God. I could have done a much better job of being my own doctor. And of course, I, you know, finding, uh, finding the root of that. But it's a cool time to be alive where those of us that are waking up and have access to information like you guys are providing can really take responsibility well, you know, and not become this dependent infant on the teeth of Western medicine and all the inherent expenses and things that come along with that. And it's really important to keep the Pareto principle in mind, which is it, it does get complex quickly, and to be able to synthesize the complexity is a really deep topic, and the foundations are still 80% of it, and the foundations are not that hard, right? I mean, they might be hard to do from a discipline point of view in a life that is conditioned otherwise, but if someone is not sleeping enough, sleeping well and sleeping enough, everything else they'll do is just tiny diminishing returns in comparison to sleeping enough. Right, right. And if someone is not exercising, and if they're not generally eating well, and if they're not doing some kinds of stress management and mental processes, then biohacking is actually a way to support living shittily, right? Trying to like symptom manage the fact that their life actually sucks. Right. And that's just not the way to go. Right. Um, and so if someone really just does the foundational stuff, it's amazing how much of it that addresses. And even like, say we look at heavy metals. So I can do a pre- and post-provocation test, and I can test with DMPS or DMSA or EDTA, and I'm going to get different specific bindings, and I can look at hair labs, which will give me a different time scale of what's being excreted, and I can look at um, you know metal antibody stands. And then what I'm going to find is, okay, there are specific chelation or binders that I'm going to use differentially if it's lead versus mercury, right? Or gadolinium or whatever it is. That's a lot to figure out. It's a lot of expense. And if I just put the person in a sauna every day and I gave them chlorella in the morning, that would be 80% as good. <laughs> right, right, yeah. And um, yeah. so it's just kind of important. Like One of the things we want people to know is that there are foundational things that if they don't have the time, money, proclivity, will really help them be radically healthier. And then optimization on top of that is nice. Right. Yeah, that's that's well stated. Sometimes I'll find myself taking a fifty pills in the morning trying to turn my brain on and then I realize maybe if I hadn't gone to bed at two AM and woken up at seven thirty, you know. Uh, so that's that's very true. Some of those things are just basic lifestyle choices. If you eat if you think about it, if you're gonna eat food in that's measured in pounds and it's all nutrient, right? That's all toxin or nutrient, and then you're gonna take supplements that are measured in grams. The supplement, the word supplement means to supplement that which you're getting from diet, right? Like getting the pounds right is a big fucking deal. Right. And similarly with sleep, like when you exercise, all that torn muscle that it needs repair is going to be repairing during sleep, during delta sleep in particular. And all those nutrients that need to go into new tissues are going to do that during sleep. And so if you're not sleeping enough, like all the other stuff just kind of doesn't matter that much. And so this is one of the places where I want to empower people in the face of the complexity to know that there is a simplicity that is most of it, which is if you live a life that is relatively closer to an evolutionary environment, an evolutionary life, you'll just do a lot better. And then all the other stuff, if you're sick, you definitely want to go find good functional practitioners. And if you really want to optimize, you want to go. Yeah, well said. I love it, man. I've got about 
In the interest of time, we're, we're right around the two-hour mark, which is I try to cap any conversation off, no matter how much more there is to do. But I have my notes for part two. I'd love to uh, sit down and have another talk with you. I mean, every time, every like, every time you have an answer to a question, twenty more questions populate. <laughs> I'm just like stifling more that have come about. So we're definitely going to have to talk again. Uh, but I really appreciate your perspective. I would love to talk it's, again. This is fun, and yeah, I, it's just fascinating. Dude, you're just you're you're so full of information. I mean, you really are just a fascinating guy. I was all pumping people up on Instagram on the way down. I'm like, this guy's really smart, you guys. And you know, you know, I'm not stroking your ego. It's just you are. It's the thing that you and I were talking about is that people are actually fascinated by life without being broken, right? Right. And they can restore that if it, if they were broken. And if you just spend your life following things that you're fascinated about, you will tend to learn things. Right. I want to know what's up next with Neurohacker Collective. You mentioned the, the functional medicine kind of interface thing. Uh, can you reveal yet what your next uh, supplement or product is going to be? We've got about 10 products that have already tested well in the prototype phase of different types that will be going through you know, final refinement and trials and like that uh, before being released. We're actually hiring right now for um, additional formulators and VP of product and et cetera and researchers to um, come help because as we're scaling, it needs more work to be able to do it as, at the speed we want to. So we will not produce any product that is to treat any medical condition. Cannot do that, right? That's a medical thing. Um, but things that support sleep, things that support healthy sensory process, meaning if there are sources of chronic pain, the chronic pain is not bothering people. Things that help support natural calmness, which is not saying an anti-anxiety thing, but is a yeah. natural calmness. <laughs> I, get um, you. I think our audience is able to read between the lines. All of those I, I find that I dance around uh, terminology so much on this show in the interest of protecting my guests that happen to produce a different product or service or whatever. So those are things that um, will be coming soon. We have a new version of Qualia also that uh, is just a single step, less total pills. Oh, wow. And uh, right now it's testing as effectively. So we, we spent a year refining it. Wow, and so that will cool. be coming out early this next year. Exciting. So a handful of new products in the nutraceutical mind-brain health space. Then curating neurotech across those platforms. Uh, I mean, all types of neurotech with a proper scientific vetting curation platform. And then the doctor program are the things that I'm really oh, most man, excited awesome. about. Awesome. When you say neurotech, are you talking about lasers and light devices and magnetism and all this kind of stuff? Oh, cool. That's interesting. Those of you listening that aren't seeing the videos, I walked into Daniel's home here. It's a beautiful home. It's a gigantic house. It's a lot of big rooms. It's lovely. But in every everywhere I look, I see some biohacking tool or something. There's big amethyst crystals everywhere. There's a Samina bed right in front of me and a bulletproof sleep induction mat and earth pulse, uh, essential oils in the air. I mean, it's like it's just so in alignment with my lifestyle. What are some of the um, neuro-enhancing or just life-enhancing uh, technologies that you're digging right now personally? Mm -hmm. Some of the ones that I appreciate a lot that are like consumer neurotech, they're not still in R&D. I'm a big fan, like everybody else is, of red light. And so companies like Juve and Vilight and other ones that yeah. are working on intranasal, transcranial, whole body, um, near infrared and visible infrared. And we wouldn't need that if we just spent enough time in the sun. 
Right. But if you don't spend enough time in the sun, it is removed from normal indoor lighting because it's the part that makes it expensive. And yeah, it uses up more energy to make warm light, right? So rather than do the whole house, you just do your body with your clothes off. And right. we photosynthesize molecules like plants do. Not as many as plants. Plants are all surface area photosynthesis. We're not that much surface area, but we it's a meaningful part. So we know that the bluer and UV into the spectrum helps us with vitamin D. And the way that it does vitamin D synthesis is different than orally supplementing vitamin D. So there's meaningfulness there. But nitric oxide is also uh, photosynthesized from exposure to light. And ATP specifically is upregulated. Mitochondrial output of ATP is upregulated from the red end of the spectrum. And so upregulating ATP output is kind of just good for everything, right? This just means increased cellular energy to do whatever the cells are doing. So that's one I like, and I do like transcranial and intranasal applications, mm-hmm. especially where there is TBI or tinnitus or things there where you don't quite know how to address it specifically. But in- Ooh, interesting, because I do the, na- the V-light, the 810 nanometers, uh, near-infrared, it's yep. invisible, right? I used that one. I used to have the one that was six something it was very red it lit up the whole front of your face which i just like that for a fact i don't know which one does what and then i do the juve and i love both of those as well like seriously and but here's the thing i also get a lot of sun my vitamin d levels are off the chart i still supplement with it here's one thing that i wanted to get your opinion and i always say okay it's the end of the interview and then it goes on for another hour but uh in all seriousness, with the spectrum of light, because I, I do sun gazing, I've been doing that for years, grounding, all I'm sun gazing when the sun rises or goes down, uh, I get f- full naked sun as much as possible. So I'm getting a lot of the natural spectrums. I limit blue light at night, like pretty hardcore in the home. When it gets dark outside, it also gets amber and red inside. Like I'm, I'm dialing that in. My sleep's great, circadian rhythm. But when it comes to the spectrums of sunlight, you know, different people might have different opinions on this, but based on being a 47-year-old guy and knowing what the sky looks like normally with planes in it or planes not in it, there is unequivocally some geoengineering going on on the planet. Um, and I think anyone that doesn't acknowledge that to some degree, like has serious psychological issues, having you know looked up in the sky and not seen weird clouds and the formations and stuff we have now, there's definitely something going on, which is, of course, a different conversation, but... With the weather manipulation, what's been going on in the sky, I often wonder because it does have apparently something to do with reflecting the sun's you know, radiation back out into space to cool the planet, whatever the fuck's going on. But the temperature of the light and the spectrum of light is being altered in an unnatural way from whatever's being done in our skies. Do you think that that's having you know, an effect on our biology, just aside from whatever toxins might, we might be breathing in, but just the actual nature of light itself? Of course. (laughs) Very short answer to a long question. So geoengineering is an approach to us recognizing that we're very close to positive feedback loops on certain climate change dynamics and people freak out. And the freak out says, well, we need to actually get the temperature down because even before the acid is killing the coral, from ocean acidification, from CO2 diffusing into the water as carbonic acid. Even before the trophic cascades are killing the coral from the large fish dying off from overfishing, the temperature is the main thing driving them into bleaching and hypometabolism. They can't stay in that place very long. Most of the photosynthesis of the world happens in the oceans, and a lot of it depends on the coral. And the positive feedback loop on the albedo cycle at the caps, Like so it's like, whoa, we need to get the temperature down. 
So the idea of let's just reflect 20% of sunlight by putting particles in the upper atmosphere that will reflect 20% of sunlight is the same exact approach as our cholesterol's high use a statin. Mm, right? It is a right, it's right. addressing the symptom in a way that will then have effects that are negative for other parts of it because we're scared of the symptom without understanding what caused it and addressing it at a cause level. So of course what we should be focused on is how do we just increase photosynthesis for sequestration and decrease emissions and what has to happen to be able to do that at what scale and time. But yeah, it's very interesting. Allopathic medicine is looking at individual metrics that we've correlated to something and how do we exogenously override that individual metric without looking at what brought it about to be that way. And so complex multifactorial dynamics we suck at, which is why we don't have a single cure for any chronic illness. We can cut cancers out, radiate them out, poison them out. We can't make them stop growing and understand why they grow in terms of current medicine. Same with psychiatric illnesses, same with neurodegenerative, same with autoimmune, because they don't have a single cause. We're actually awesome at acute cause issues, right? Right, right. If it's an acute injury or an acute infection or an acute toxicity, that's really straightforward and we know how to treat that thing. But if it is anything other than an acute single cause, then we kind of suck at it right now because it requires a different approach to science, uh, this complexity approach, which also requires a different fiscal model and a different IP structure and a whole bunch of things. We approach the world the same way. Our approach to climate change, to starvation, to whatever, is to tweak something to affect that thing here without addressing the underlying dynamics. It made it that almost always moves the So geoengineering is like allopathic medicine it is a statin to the environment yeah that's that's funny man and definitely it's affecting the light going back to like your you know your top devices a lot of the stuff that's coming out now they think that's really effective is ways to sort of use technology to mimic nature in a sense i mean that's how i think about an infrared sauna or cryotherapy i mean any of the things that i do is quote-unquote biohacks or grounding you know using earthing technology pmf all this stuff it's all really just trying to create that homeostatic uh, experience of being a sentient being on planet Earth in its natural state. But we're not in a natural state, including the light spectrum that's coming at us from the sun. Like, you can't even get what you would have gotten 100 years ago. It's true. Our main biohacks are actually just putting us back in something closer to an evolutionary environment. So our air filter is not making special air. It's just making less (laughs) polluted air, right? I saw that you have one over there, too. I have them in every room. Yeah, yeah. And our water filters are also still not as good as spring water, right? Do you have a pristine hydro filter? I don't have a pristine hydro. Okay, they're they're in Laguna Beach, you know, not far from here, but I've done a lot of research on the filters, and I'm going to interview that guy, but I think if I had to have a filter, he'd probably be the guy. He vortexes the water. He puts magnesium bicarbonate silica back in it. I mean, he's like, he's like making spring water out of municipal water. It's crazy. But anyway. But, you know, whether we're changing our, whether we're pulling toxins out of the environment or like, you know, I was mentioning the VOC here. Actually, it's yeah. not releasing much because I use the AFM Safe Coat. Um, oh, no way. And Safe Coat's another biohack that I think is awesome. If you have a place that has new carpet or new um, paint, or you're going to paint or install things, the non-toxic products that AFM makes are really good. No way. Cool. Um, that is going in the show notes. Uh, but yeah, I mean, so much of it is just recreating evolutionary environment, which is why so many people who are ill go like, move to or visit some more rural, natural place, and they get better. 
Right, right. Um, and so that's a lot of it. And then there's, yeah. of course, advanced shit that is not just doing that. Yeah. Um, what, other, what other kind of tricks you got up your sleeve that I haven't observed walking by tech-wise? Well, uh, QEEG-based neurofeedback is awesome. Mm, yeah. And whether you're doing alpha-theta training or SMR training or delta training should be based off your QEEG and someone knows how, who knows how to do that well. I don't know if you've ever went to Peak Brain since you live in LA. I go there all the time, yeah. But Andrew's good. Yeah, Andrew is good. I interviewed him here uh, on the show, and I was on his show too. Yeah, brilliant guy. So uh, that's a great therapy. Um, Right now, I mean, TMS is actually interesting. It's it's early, but it's interesting for many things. What's TMS? Transcranial magnetic stimulation. Oh, okay. Transcranial ultrasound is profoundly interesting in the early studies at University of Arizona and some Japanese universities in curing Alzheimer's. Um, through a very wow. n- novel proposed mechanism involving microtubules, but it's too early to really know what it's doing. So there's a number of high-tech methods that are really cool, and specifically, there's also... Uh, some of the most high-tech ones are, are actually still evolutionary environment ones. Like the cutting edge of microbiomics right now is mostly that the vaginal flora and the breast milk of indigenous people who were never exposed to chlorinated water and antibiotics and glyphosate have a whole bunch of bacteria that we just don't have in probiotics anywhere else that are actually part of our evolutionary environment that are the most significant factors for epigenetic modulation of our genome. Wow. Um, so that's very cutting edge right. understanding of epigenetics and microbiomics. Right. And it is also saying, oh, evolution actually kind of makes sense. Um, <laughs> right. Or fecal implants from clean, fe- you know, a, a, a clean source, so to speak. So we have a chunk of work in microbiomics we're working on right now that cool. um, I'm, we're not that close yet because yeah. of what we want to do, but I'm excited about it. Cool. I will say, obviously we didn't get into psychedelics and entheogens. Fascinating. <laughs> I know, we got, I have a whole section on that. Yeah. Um, and we didn't get into any of the psycho-emotional, psycho-spiritual work. Or, right. But on the just evolutionary environment, I, I will make a thought in closing is just like a statin is optimizing for one thing, right? Lower your cholesterol without looking at, hey, is the cholesterol maybe protecting the arterial system from oxidative damage and that's not a good idea or what's the whole rest of the story going on? When we optimize for something that is affecting a lot of other things and we're not paying attention, we get externality, right? Which is also called side effect. We built the entire world, the human built world, for a few purposes in ways that affected a lot of other things. So we build a house to protect us from the elements and give us a safe place to be and then maybe for certain aspects of aesthetics but we didn't pay attention to oh well there's actually chemistry that's in the paint that is affecting us and oh yeah the fungicides that are in there that are making um, fungicide resistant funguses that are why we have an issue with mold we never did before oh, that, that that actually is an important thing like in the drywall paints oh, in, in the paint in the 70s started having fungicides added oh, to resist God. mold so and then the mold became super... MRSA mold. Oh, God, that's insane. So the reason everyone has mold issues when we lived with mold forever in an evolutionary right. environment is because this is mutant mold. Oh, my um, God, dude. But, so, but even things that's like, crazy. you know, the, the color and angle, right? All of these end up affecting the, the psyche, this field of environmental psych. So, like, right. if you're in an area where there's graffiti and trash on the ground and the walls... This kind of environmental psych study has been done many times. If, if you just paint over the graffiti and clean up the trash, violent crime drops like 30 to 50%. Wow. And it's because you think about what the environment's transmitting right. when you're there is, one, this is a wasteland and I'm in survival mode. Mm-hmm. And two, this is a place where law doesn't operate. 
mm-hmm. right? Because laws yeah. have been broken and they're not rectified. Right. And right. as soon as you fix those things, how violent human beings are is being changed at the like fifty percent level by an environmental psych. Right. Ch- I've heard uh, David Hawkins talk about that. Uh, he called it the broken window theory. You know, mm-hmm. you have a building in the ghetto and it gets ignored and then someone breaks a window and then someone yeah. comes along and breaks another window then comes the graffiti then the drug dealer's on the corner and never, I never thought about the kind of mechanics of it that's very interesting it's, I guess the, it's like the level of consciousness of anything could you say would you frame it in that way? I would say that's a way of reducing the complexity of it right um, which is kind of my thing. <laughs> but, I interview people like you and go, just squish that down into a bite-sized thought. But if, I mean, so if you go into a cathedral, they're doing environmental psych, and so the sound and the smell and the visual and every aspect of the sensory process is designed to uplift and exalt. But then specifically, that it's narrow and very high has a certain effect that's different than if it was wide and high or if it was not high, right? Which is, you're very focused on up, and so then you feel very small, and you can both have a sense of feeling, you know, and then the priest is halfway between you and where Jesus is up there and where God is. And so both, I mean, if you want to look at the cynical side of the, this is how you make a, a good authoritarian kind of dynamic where everybody feels small with an authority up there, but also the beautiful, the mystical side of people feeling a sense of awe and exaltation, right? right, right. The, the environmental psychology of how those buildings are done induce state, right? right? Just like Burning Man induces state right. because of the environment, even if you don't take Pyramids. drugs. So yeah. what we are realizing is that we have built a world that we are not well adapted to. Right. And that's affecting us in a lot of ways that we didn't pay attention to that are mostly not good for us. And so there is this task that you, and it's not good for the planet, right? And it's not good for us. So there's this task of how do we rebuild the entire physical built world in a way where the goal, the primary goal is not, you know, it being inexpensive or fast or aesthetically beautiful. Those are all partial goals. The primary goal is that it is enlightening the humans that are inhabiting it. How do you create a built world that makes the healthiest, most enlightened, most pro-social human beings that are inhabiting it? And how do we rebuild the entire world with that in mind? In, in relationship to, you know, harmony with the ecosystem. So that's the biohack that is most interesting to me. That's amazing, dude. I love that. Really good way to sum it up. All right, so closing question. Who have been three teachers or teachings that have influenced your work? Like, who have you learned from that we might go up and learn from as well? Specifically more related to individual health? No, or just anything. anything. Anything, totally broad. Could be a book, teacher, philosophy, mm-hmm. relative... And preferably something that one could go look up or we can put in the show notes, you know, uh, Buckmeister Fuller or whatever, you know. Buckmeister Fuller would definitely be at the top of the list. And uh, um, either Operating Manual for Spaceship Earth or Critical Path being the most approachable books on um, understanding the state of the world and how to think and how to design. So that would be very high on the list. And then ordering three is impossible for me. So I'll just say the ones that came to mind first. Yeah, yeah, that's the idea. Finite and Infinite Games by James Carse is a great book. It's a book that will help you understand both the future of economics, the future of worldview, and very deep spiritual principles together from a game theoretic perspective. It's a small, easy read. Wow, cool. Um, It's a great one. And then the next one that came to mind was uh, Anthony DeMello, who was actually a Jesuit priest, but was uh, someone who studied all the world religions and traditions and spent most of his time in India. Uh, little book called The Way to Love. 
and it's a tiny little book, and um, Principles of Sovereignty. What does it mean to actually be whole and to be able to love from a place of wholeness rather than um, this commodities exchange we usually call love of what do I have to give someone to get the security and reassurance and validation I'm looking for and how will I punish them if they don't do what I want. Um, <laughs> but because there, there is really no such thing as being able to really love someone, which means to see them and want for them if you need them to be something. Because you can't see them if you need them to be something else, right? And you can't want for them if what's in their highest good isn't them meeting your needs. So loving from a place of wholeness, it's a great little book. Damn, so, that sounds awesome. Those are three good ones. All right, great. Thank you so much. Wow, it's fascinating. <laughs> I have so much more research to do now. Well, thank you so much for joining. Uh, where would you like to send people in terms of websites, social media, any of that? Yeah, two things is if, uh, if people are interested to learn more about what Neurohacker is doing, easy, neurohacker.com. If people are interested more in some of the you know, larger social um, topics, the economics, education, et cetera, I have a blog at uh, civilizationemerging.com, and you can go check stuff out there. Awesome, great. We'll put those, those links in the show notes. For those of you listening and you want the show notes for every episode, please remember you can go to lukestory.com forward slash newsletter, enter your email, and we'll send them to you. So thank you so much for joining me, dude. I look forward to doing it again. This was fun. Right on. Yo, 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 listeners, near and far, what's happening? How was that conversation, huh? Quite a mind blower, if I don't say so myself. I already look forward to part two, because as you can see, even after two hours, we barely scratched the surface of uh, the dimensions that we can expand into with Daniel Schmachtenberger. What a fascinating guy. What a cool guy. I love this dude. Right when we were done, I really was like, okay, when can we do this again? Like, I'm just going to drive back to LA, get a couple nights sleep, come back, let's roll. He lives down near San Diego, so it's quite a drive. But I'm so glad I got to do this one in person. And more than anything, I'm so glad that you got to join me for the second show of 2018. I'd like to remind you that I do this show every Tuesday, folks, and even sometimes twice a week, but definitely Tuesday. Uh, next week, I want you to do yourself a huge favor and check in again when I interview Alien Zach from a place called the Womb Center in New York City. And we talk all about consciousness, sound, breath work psychedelics. It is a super trippy dive, just like this one, into the realm of consciousness. And it is amazing. It's one I've been sitting on for a couple months and I'm like, I got to put this out. It's too good. So that's going to be a two-parter next week. To ensure that you don't miss that episode or any episodes to follow, you can make it really easy on yourself by just clicking subscribe on this podcast, on your podcast player, iTunes, wherever you're listening to this, just subscribe, dog. Super easy. That's all you got to do. Then every week, doink, 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 Lifestylist Podcast, right on your device. You don't have to think about anything. You're going to get the goods for freezies. Another thing that I want to let you know is the show's also on Spotify now. Really cool thing that happened. It was one of my goals in 2017. Nailed it. It's on Spotify. It's a really great interface. You can listen to the show to your heart's content over there. Also want to invite you to join me on Instagram. That is, of course, my social media of choice. If you want to see me doing all the crazy stuff that I talk about on this show, you definitely want to follow my Instagram stories. My feed, you know, I don't know. It's all right. I'm not a professional photographer. I do the best I can. I wish it was prettier. You know, your feed could be really nice. Mine's okay, I'd say. 
But I think my stories are pretty awesome. I humbly, I humbly declare that. Because uh, they go away in 24 hours, so I don't give a shit if I look totally spastic and mental. So I do a lot of really goofy, yet I think entertaining and, uh, and educational things on the stories. So all the supplements and lifestyle hacks and all this stuff. So you can follow my adventures on Instagram stories. If you want to take it to the next level, though, and you really want to be part of this community, I'd love for you to join our Facebook group. Uh, I just started a private Facebook group for the Lifestylist podcast, our guests and our listeners. And that is where I answer questions and do Facebook lives. I do all kinds of exclusive, exclusive content over there. And so come hang out. All you have to do to find us in Facebook is just go into the search bar, put the Lifestylist podcast and you will find the group. Ask to join. We'll let you in and we'll keep you in as long as you behave yourself. All right, so thank you so, so much for listening to this show and for sharing it with friends. I really, really appreciate your ears. And uh, again, Happy New Year. Let's make 2018 the best ever. Don't forget to come join me this Friday night, January 19th at One Taste Venice, where we are going to be doing breath work, chakra balancing, talking about connection, intimacy, orgasm, sex, meditation, consciousness, and all sorts of rad stuff. So go to lukestory.com forward slash events to get in. Again, that's this Friday, January 19th at One Taste Venice. Go to lukestory.com forward slash events to get your ticket. 